Hi, Walter. I was at the mall today, and guess what happened? I met the most wonderful girl. We went shopping at JCPenney's, and she tried on a lot of clothes. And she ended up buying a whole lot of them, you know what I mean? And then we decided to go and take a look at some of the jewelry at K Jewelers, and she picked out this most awesome necklace, that I've, the most amazing necklace I've ever seen. And I, I know she wanted me to buy it for her because she kept on looking at me and kept on giving me that look. You know the look. And then we got kind of tired of the mall, and I brought her back to my place. And I know, I know she hates cameras, Walter, but I'm going to show you her anyways. You ready? <laughs> And written on the wall. And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Want to welcome all of you back to the show. Oh my goodness, I love your new outfit from JCPenney and your new boyfriend seems really creepy and I think you can do better and I don't think you should be with him and I'm just saying that like really that's not an okay way to act and he's making these a weird weird eyes i feel like early warning signs Mm. are just you know important to flag and i did this is me flagging it run run away you can do better before we get there we do want to thank all of you for coming back so glad you're not in a basement somewhere but anyway (laughs) we do want to thank everyone that's left ratings and reviews on itunes such as nika 3388 james snow and mz xae cool and we do want to remind you that you can reach out to us on iTunes, leaving reviews on social media through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod, or at our website, justastorypod.com. And that's where you can find links to our merchandise, where we put things I draw on things you can purchase. It's amazing, the system they have there. And also, you can find links to our Patreon page, where you can become a sustaining member like you. Like me? I don't know, that's just what they say on NPR. You know, brought to you by the letter R, Chuck E. Cheese, and viewers like you. Oh, right, of course. And there is one other way you can reach out to us, and that would be on the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. You can dial us up on the Urban Legend Hotline at 512-222-3375. And that is where you can call and tell us all about your day, or a story, or a joke, or a concern. Or an urban legend. Uh, Or... Fake news. If you're trying to fact check some fake news, there are actually better ways to do it. But you can also tell us about your journey and how you learned it was fake news, etc. That's fine. So speaking of the internet. It's a scary place. (laughs) I feel like it needs like, you know, when you go bowling and you suck and they put those things on the side so the ball doesn't go in the gutter. The bumpers? Yeah, the the internet needs bumpers hard. (laughs) I'm sure there's an app for that. I haven't found it yet. I'm going to get it for you. Can you have bumpers and porn? Is the real question. Oh, that might be a problem. <laughs> Today, we're going to start off with a very interesting story. 
We usually do that. Ah, uh, but this is a true, true as as modern, modern urban folklore as you can get. Okay, so this is a this is an internet pickings then. Oh, it comes from the depths of YouTube. Oh, <laughs> So we played the video at the top of the show, the audio. It's a short little video. And as the Daily Mail describes it. Oh, that bet they do. Because I wouldn't say this. Featured a portly man who appeared to have a girl captive and chained. The film ends with the man in the video walking into the room and slamming the door shut. It's kind of reductive. I feel like there's a lot more going on in the video than just him slamming the door. Let's talk about it. What kind of happens in the video? What makes the video disconcerting is the fact that he is so upbeat and earnest seeming. Mm -hmm. And he seems just like so sincerely pleased about his girlfriend and jolly. Just (laughs) And you don't know what's going to happen as you're going into it. You're like this... Dude's just talking about his internet girlfriend he finally met. Right. And then he go he does go into a different section of his home. He begins on the couch, waving at the camera and speaking to it as if he's Skyping with a friend or something. Yeah, hi, Walter. And then he does move into a different part of the house. And so he goes and he claims that he's going to show Walter his girlfriend. And we see this closed door. And when he opens it, we see the woman bound and gagged and crying. Screaming. Yes. And then... His demeanor as he's speaking to Walter never really changes. But when he walks into the room with a girl, he does get a more like aggressive posture. And then the video cuts off. And it's very disconcerting and a little eerie. But it does feel to me to be very staged. That was always the question. And when it came out in 2011 on YouTube, no one gave a shit. (laughs) Okay. Everyone was like, okay, good job making it. Cool story, bro. Yeah. Before it hit the big time, it only had 7,000 views and nine comments. But, blame it on Jorge. Hey, I do, I blame the show on Jorge sometimes. This show should be blamed on Jorge, because it's where we kind of got the very basic idea for the show. Really, Urban Legends could be fun. We watched one of his videos, literally, and it sparked our, our curiosity. So we, we can blame it on Jorge, and we can blame this on him, too. We can, because he posted in one of his compilation videos, like creepy videos on the internet, and that's when it started getting more traffic. And then Imager comes into play. We're getting all the internet. All of it. Where are you, Reddit? Oh, it's coming. (laughs) Okay, good. So Gemini Tiger, a user, posted an analysis of the video on Imager, linking it to a real missing persons case, a girl named Kayla Berg. Reddit users... Definitely thought that they recognized the girl. And so the web sleuthing began last year. So it's last year. That's 2016. Oh my God. For those listening We saw future. it before that. We yeah. did, yeah. So what led them to believe that this was Kayla Berg? So Gemini Tiger is posting. Right, I know. But why did, she, why did Gemini Tiger believe that? She just analyzed it and felt or that's he. what it was. Yeah. And so here's some comments. Okay, this is fucking creepy. Yeah, agreed. He looks like he's acting. But she doesn't. So we're not going to pretend that she could be a better actor. But anyway, let's continue. I'd much rather have this be exposed as a fake than have this be written off as a fake and ignored. I'm glad this shit has been reported to the police. There are lots of comments about how the acting's really bad, like you said. And he's trying too hard. But then he opens the door to her screaming. And it doesn't seem like she's acting. And that is really the point that it is scary. And... It crosses the line. Like I said, he seems like he is putting on a poor performance of being a nerd almost. Like a, maybe like a heightened caricature of a nerd. Um, a little too 
something. Something. Like a little too like musical theater. <laughs> you know, like a, he's using theater faces. Then he, like I said, his posture changes. Like when he walks in that room with her, his shoulders go up and his hands clench. And he's like his entire composure changes. And she's doing a hell of a job looking very mm. distressed. At first, I was sure it was fake. And then I went through an imager album that pointed out that the room's locked from the outside. Who the hell builds a small cramped bathroom in their basement that's locked from the outside? The room- that's a good point. <laughs> the room's built like a cell. It's fake. Who has a basement bathroom like this? The video is really unsettling. It freaks me out. So we did actually have a house with locks on the outsides of doors, but it was the haunted house. (laughs) So This is my thought, too. It just seems too perfect for keeping somebody down there and out of the way. Maybe it's a normal house and the bathroom isn't out of place, but her crying just seems so sad and authentic. I don't know how much sad, authentic, helpless, pleading, crying people have heard. You know what I mean? Like, it's a rare category of like, oh my God, help me. Like, I mean, you're a doctor in an emergency room, so you've probably heard it more often than most. But true, like terror i don't know that we all have our no but we have a frame of reference to horror movies right and, and that's so what it sounds like it and sounds like a horror yeah. movie but those that's acting good acting okay or bad acting so there was much speculation what was going on with this why is this guy this portly guy God. addressing walter so again the web sleuthing oh shit they thought that they might be like competing serial killers Hey, that's happened before. It has. Or they were maybe sharing snuff films. You know, just something along those lines. Like, Walter's clearly going to be okay with it. Walter wants to At the to very see least. Yeah. And so they linked him to Walter E. Ellis, who was a real serial killer, whose moniker was the Milwaukee Northside Strangler. Oh. Who raped and strangled seven women in the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, between 1986 and 2007. And he was apprehended in 2009, so a few years prior to the video being posted. Mm-hmm. And people thought that maybe he was trying to reach out to his friend who he hadn't heard from. Are we positive that Walter Ellis is not Paul Ryan? <laughs> I don't think so. But if he was active in Wisconsin, then the could the girl and the suspect, her captor be in Wisconsin as well, or related to it. Fair reasoning. And so they identified Kayla Berg. Was she missing from Wisconsin? From Antigua, Wisconsin. Okay. In 2009. Stars are aligning. I would feel like I was onto something, sure. So her mom said, she called me that afternoon on August 11th around 1 or 2 and said she was going to hang around at her dad's. She said, I love you. I said, I love you back. They agreed to talk later, but they never did. One of her brother's friends picked Kayla up at her father's house at about 8.30. The two arrived at McDonald's half an hour later. Kayla ran inside, talked briefly with her friend, and then left. She had told her friend she planned to ride around the car for a while. Antigua Police Chief says that the last we pretty much know about the story we have is around 10 p.m. at that time. The male said he dropped her off at her boyfriend's house in Wausau, about 34 miles from Antigua. So Kayla had directed him to this house saying that her boyfriend lived there and he dropped her off and drove away. Didn't get out of the car or anything. Mm-hmm. So the police do search the house and they don't find any evidence there. Was it her boyfriend's house? So they did call the boyfriend who says he never saw her. The house that she was dropped off at was where he used to live and it was recently condemned and her boyfriend no longer lived there. 
and her friend said that she had been to Miguel, her boyfriend's new house, the week prior. Okay, well, they're teenagers, Jacob. They might just be looking for a place to be alone. Could be. Could be. But she hadn't told any of her friends she was going to go meet with him. Again. And another thing that makes the case even more difficult is that her missing was not reported for six days. Why? How? Because the oh, two... Oh, God. Did they have joint custody yeah. and they thought she was with the other one? Yeah, and they just kind of had an open door policy. It wasn't super strict. Oh, no. So, several sightings of her were reported to the police. Are any of them credible? Not really. Okay. And as the case gets national attention, she starts being spotted everywhere. Cadaver dogs did get two hits, one at Kevin's house and one at the potato farm he worked at. And Kevin is the friend. Was giving her a ride. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But it quickly became a missing persons cold case until web sleuths linked the video and the case last year. So Gemini Tiger commented, it wasn't just me that tipped them off. An Antigua detective that I spoke to said their phone had been ringing off the hook. Seriously? Yeah. Her mother did feel there was a resemblance. I thought it was Kayla. It looked like her and it was the worst feeling. Just sick and disturbing. I didn't sleep for days. So the chief said it's got some similarities and that's enough for us that we need to at least investigate it. It only took him three days to figure out who the creators were. Good for him. I think that's all very appropriate. I actually don't think... Oh, yeah. I don't think that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that did not hurt anything for him to look into and just make sure. Now, it turned out to be made by Michael Maiden and Lucy Cavo and Jason Durr of Utica, New York. They had posted many different kind of videos online. Her mother said, I think there's something wrong in their heads. You can't make a video like this and think everything's going to be okay. There's a major problem in the world with missing people, not just children, but missing people in general. And doing something like this as a supposed scare tactic is disturbing. So they did release a statement about the video of the creators, saying, We who created the video did so with no intention of harming anyone or to correlate to any actual event. There was no intention of causing emotional harm to any persons. It was not a hoax or prank, which would have the connotation of causing harm or malice. It was at the time something we considered harmless and meant to be part of a fictional web horror miniseries. We didn't continue the series as it lacked the interest from our small circle of viewers at the time and was forgotten about. We apologize that the internet and media took an internet fictional video and via misinformation, bad research, and conclusion jumping caused any emotional distress to anyone. That's a sorry, not sorry, if I've ever heard one. Big time. However, as said before, we had no intention when making the video, which was years ago, and causing any emotional harm or correlation to any actual event or person. It was a work of fiction. Yeah, I mean, I I see where they're coming from. They're like, this is just a stupid video. Like, we didn't say, hey, I have a new girlfriend. Her name is Kayla Berg. Come on. Exactly. The link was completely done outside of their control. I guess you could say that there is some ethical responsibility to put like a thing up at the beginning that's like, this is a work of fiction. You would think. But I guess like Lonely Girl 15 and things like that oh, yeah. kind of blurred that line. <laughs> exactly. And that's like, and you look at all the horror movies that are made where it's just based on a true story. Or like, this recorder was found, blah, blah, blah. Right, you can go back to all of the found footage and things mm-hmm. like that and it makes it scarier. It draws you in. If you can pretend like it's real. But if you go sit in a movie theater, you know what you're signing up for on some 
level. But media is changing. But media is changing. So Imager Gemini Tiger said, I hope that at the very least the amount of press that Kayla got over the weekend in the past couple of days might offset some of that pain and perhaps new leads will flourish. With that said, I still feel like a complete asshole for causing all of this. Just know that it came from genuine concern. That's how you say you're sorry. (laughs) I'm an asshole. Sorry. Hopefully it helped. But the creators do have a point with saying that this was something fictional that, and there are thousands of fictional videos with the same quality and Mm -hmm. similar storylines on YouTube or other places that don't get misconstrued like this. And it was an extension of the fiction by the media and through disinformation and through just viral spreading. I don't know that it was disinformation. It was an earnest, like, could this be? Like, what do you think of it? I think that their wording about, like, bad research is not fair. It's actually really, really good research. It's not somebody from, like, 2012 in Kansas. You know, like, they were actually doing a good... I would be impressed with that research. No, you're right. And, you know, this is something where they did not say this is related. But you know what? (laughs) There are videos that do cross that line on YouTube. Okay, so this is a rabbit hole. Do you want to talk about the rabbit hole that we fell into? The one we fell into? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Are you ready? It was was a weird experience. (laughs) I feel like we need a moderator. Okay, so we were looking for like other cases of this happening. We wanted to know is, hey, Walter, the the only thing that kind of blurred the line between fact and fiction. To this degree. To this degree, affecting real cases. Right. And so we found this channel called Deeper. It's the name of the YouTube channel. And the little avatar for the channel is a darkened image of an angler fish. This is all you know when you go there and you go and you look and there are a bunch of videos and few of them are longer than like three minutes. The channel first uploaded a video in May 2016. Now they're very modern art. I mean, they're just nonsensical. There's there's no story. There is random videos. You've got a guy like walking through a hallway. Modern art. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of them look like older VHS tapes. At least at first. And then as you progress through the videos on this channel, the videos become more and more high definition and look to be filmed on a phone. And the subject matter changes. The subject matter it changes. It starts to look like a warehouse and there's barrels and there's like kind of maybe under construction. Some cleaning supply stuff. Oh, you see like big vats of acid, which is Mm -hmm. fun. Dumpsters. Mm -hmm. Very industrial park. Yeah. Modern art. Just make a a comment on the state of our society today. I mean, don't you feel like you're trapped in insulation being shoved toward a dumpster? Sometimes. Yeah, I know. It's a real question. I'm going to watch the news. (laughs) So there's one video in particular which shows like fans and all I can think of is Apocalypse Now. But it gets really interesting in this one video um, which features a field, a man walking in a field, and it is called Listen. And through much analysis by a curious internet community, it was revealed that when you took the audio from the video. Which had like sirens and it seemed like just ambient noise. Mm-hmm. But when you put that into a spectrograph on like an audio editing software. Right. Like you could do it on Adobe, like which we use for the show. So when you put the sound into a spectrograph form, the name Stephanie Ann Bauman was revealed in the spectrograph. And this is not like, oh, if you squint. 
No, it is there. It is. It's in text. Like it's yes. in. It's in like Arial font. I mean, people must have freaked out when they saw this name. Who's this person? She's a 15 year old girl, and it's an actual cold case. On October 28th of 1980, Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office officers were dispatched to County Road 173 near US 36, and they discovered the body of 15-year-old Stephanie Bauman. Her body was bruised and left lying in a ditch. She died of hypothermia. She reportedly lived in a group home but had run away. She was reported to have left the group home approximately two weeks prior to her death and was reported to have stayed with different acquaintances just prior to her death. And it's still a cold case. No one knows what happened to her. So now armed with an honest-to-God real-life clue. A real clue that is easily accessible to find information about this cold case. The internet was, like, on it. (laughs) On it. So... Looking at many of the other videos using codes like hexadecimal, Caesar, and Venier ciphers, they were able to decipher some of the other like titles and descriptions of videos. Right. And there's a heavy reliance on Latin steering toward mythology and a lot of references to like hunting and stalking. Then the video 25 was uploaded and it was put through the same spectrograph process that the first video was, that listen was. And in that spectrograph, the letters E B S D Z B O E F S T P O. What the hell's that? Well, it's a Caesar cipher. Oh, okay. A Caesar cipher is like you basically move down a certain amount in the alphabet, and you're given a number. If it were two, you'd move two down. You'd move two down, and mm. C would be A. Yes. So the key they were given was 25. So everything shifts. This is the name of the video. They were not given a key, the key they used, and the name Darcy Anderson was revealed. Is that another cold case? It is. She was a 24-year-old who would wake up early to work at a bakery. On December 17th, Darcy was reported missing and was last seen in her Castle Rock home in Colorado. Five days later, Anderson's body was found and had been stuffed into the trunk of her own car, which was located within a muddy alley near West Jewel Avenue and Bannock Street in Denver. The autopsy revealed that Darcy had been strangled to death. Anyone with information regarding this case is asked to please contact the Denver Police Department. This is another murdered girl. In Colorado. In Colorado, in the same vicinity. The title of another video when deciphered led to a link. And there, another video, which was called Mortem. And it had a string of text superimposed. And when that was decoded... A link was found to a wave file, and this gave the name Edith Bernice Learners through spectrograph analysis, which was a 1995 case. So she disappeared on November 17th of 1995. She was 38, and she was supposed to arrive at the home of a friend and never did. When she did not arrive, her family members reported her missing. Miss Learners has a medical condition involving her heart and was on medication. She had just given birth to a child prior to her disappearance and was last seen wearing pinkish clear round glasses. Anyone with information regarding this case is asked to please contact the Colorado Springs Police Department. So another cold case referenced in these cryptic videos. I mean, this seems like a 2003 movie starring Denzel Washington and like some ridiculously hot actress playing the nerdy computer tech sleuth. Yeah, I'd see that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and David Fincher directing. Now that I'd say. He never has women in his movies. Don't be silly. He does. They just get killed. 
I've never thought about it before, but this is a real problem. <laughs> so the description was updated, and it became obvious that the new description was coordinates. And so when they were put into Google Maps, they led to a field near Curtis Road, which is outside of Colorado Springs. There were two ciphers. There's a Visionaire cipher, and they used the word Curtis as the key for the Visionaire cipher. And it revealed the text R-T-Z-O-U-O-X-G-I-A-D-R-V-Z-I-H-D-A-B. That's well, that all. doesn't mean anything. No, it doesn't. It was then decoded as an Adbash cipher, and it re- revealed the name Karen Denise Aguilera. She was a 23-year-old who was last seen on September 17, 1987. On May 10, 1988, her body was found near Curtis Road and Falcon Highway. The cause of death is undetermined. Anyone with information regarding this case is asked to please contact the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. Were any others figured out? The other cipher in this case used the key fan from the video with the fans. There was a link and it translated to I love them all using a visionaire cipher in that key. So we were transfixed by this. We watched literally hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos trying to find stuff for the episode. And we came across this channel on Rainbot's feed, which is a great kind of debunking YouTube channel. Highly recommend. Yes, she's quite good. We were like, uh, why not? (laughs) I was like, come solve murders with me. And I was like, oh, come on. What are we going to find? That hasn't already been found. The internet's been here already. (laughs) Yeah, the internet has done this. This was a hot topic on Reddit and 4chan and YouTube in 2016, and it kind of petered out. Right. We had new things to be concerned about, like North Korea. True viral status. I think it has 19,000 subscribers. So, like, I went through putting the names of videos through, like, different codes and stuff. And like I came up with one, I learned how, what a Baconian cipher is. The moment that we had a basic come apart involves a video with the title 6465736F6C617469 6F6E. And it is just a two minute and like 45 second video of like tree and fence and sky and some like trash and stuff kind of stacked up and and so i took the audio from it and since he keeps using spectrographs put it through adobe audition and pulled up the spectrograph for it and was able to isolate a really really soft sound from it and he looked and he's like there are no letters and i said jacob that's morse code at which point he said bullshit and then we started decoding the morse code and it spelled out patricia and Cordova over and over and over again. So this one had not been solved yet. And Patricia Ann Cordova is a missing persons case from Colorado. She was last seen February 15th of 2005, leaving a family member's residence to go to the store when she was never heard from again. So we have this information. We have a new name that no one's deciphered and a video that most likely this is just an ARG, an alternate reality game. But in this case, someone is using these real-life cold cases. To set it up. Exactly. And so we were at this weird crossroads. You feel silly. When I called the Westminster, Colorado Police Department and left a message, I felt like a fucking crazy person. (laughs) But it comes to that point, like with the 
Hi Walter video where what's it hurt to look into it? And it's also like it's on your conscience in a really strange way. You feel like like you know the secret and you don't want to be burdened with it. I, that's how I felt about it. Like, like even if it's a game, no one else has said it. I kept just thinking, I know it's not real, but what about the 0.001% chance that it is? Worst case scenario, I guess like just to put it as put as fine a point on it as possible is that this is the actual killer of all these women who is now making some like grandiose gesture of confession and trying to atone late in life or something because these span from 1980 to 2005 and if there is a man out there that is responsible for the death of five women and there's a point zero 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 one percent chance that making a phone call can help give families some closure or you know, see to justice, I'm going to call the police department and leave the like tinfoil hat sounding message. <laughs> but you do have to ask, why is this guy doing it? You know, because sure, ARG type games have been around for a while. And like we talked with High Walter, their intent was not to include a real case. And there was no maliciousness there. Whoever's making this series of videos is using real cases that are unsolved and if this were to have gone viral had millions of views and hit the news you know like high walter did which it went huge viral it was on the news it was everywhere there was an investigation discovery special on her missing and that was the conclusion of the episode was the high walter video what would it do to the families exactly exactly what would it do to these people that are hoping to one day have some answers What's his intent? In the age of the internet where you can forget what route you took to find something, where you can lit- where there used to be an app that was called Stumble Upon, and it would just take you randomly to pages, where you can find anything and you feel like you're discovering things constantly, it's really easy to forget that things have roots and to forget that we are not the first generation to invent everything. We aren't. We aren't. We aren't. We are not the first generation to have purported serial killers sending out coded messages using real cases. This is not a new thing. Are you talking about the Zodiac killer? Oh, this is the Zodiac speaking. We just solved the case. You're the Zodiac. No, Ted Cruz is the Zodiac. Oh, <laughs> he was three years old. Cool. <laughs> Who's advanced? We could also go with my theory that he's actually just Skeletor as a time traveler and every bad thing that's ever happened in the world is his fault. Sure. He just puts on human flesh. That he steals. Obviously. Of course. I think I saw that movie too, but it was from 1973. Different, different. So the Zodiac has gone down in true crime history as the ultimate serial killer. He is the American Jack the Ripper. You will hear it. You will hear people say that. It's not that far off. It's not that far off. People have been obsessed not only with his crimes, but with his ciphers. His methods. And he seems to be this early, like, prototype of a purely predatory animal killer who is unpredictable, has no pattern, and is killing just for the sheer joy of watching people scramble when they can't solve his crimes. He's the ultimate villain. And he does seem that way, like the ultimate fictional villain. But before he starts sending encoded ciphers to the papers, there's the first murder that he's credited with. So on December 20th of 1968, Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday set out on their first official date together. They were clean-cut kids. She was an honor student. He was an Eagle Scout. And they were supposed to be going to a Christmas concert. 
But instead, as teenage kids do, they went to park at a lover's lane along Lake Herman Road. So it was later discovered that there was no Christmas concert. They're teenagers. (laughs) Who hasn't done that? Who has not made up a Christmas concert, okay? (laughs) Or like called from your friend's house and like, Mom, staying here. It shows up on caller ID and then you run away. You've done it. To New Orleans. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. Moments later, another driver noticed two seemingly lifeless bodies on the side of the road. The police and others responded to the scene and discovered Betty Lou dead with five bullet wounds in her back, appearing to have been trying to escape 28 feet from the car. David was found next to the Rambler with a bullet wound in his head, still breathing but near death. There were also bullet holes in the car's roof and back window. People suspected that he had fired warning shots trying to force the victims out of the car. Shell casings were recovered at the crime scene, and they identified the ammunition as Winchester Super X. And ballistics showed that he used a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Which all the papers will tell you, illegal to possess, in parentheses. By the way. So several people reported seeing a Chevy Impala in the area. What color? White. Blue. Okay. Both. Yeah, it's both. William Crow and his girlfriend were driving their new sports car-, car around. He sounds cool. I bet he's not an Eagle Scout. I think it was her car, actually. She's cool. <laughs> but she's not an Eagle Scout. <laughs> and in their police statement, they said, The other car was clearly chasing me, and I waited until the last moment and then turned off. The larger car behind me could not make the turn. I went down approximately 200 yards and stopped in the middle of the road. The other car had stopped shortly after the turnoff. Each of us sat there in the road. Again, youthfully stupid, I yelled about kicking his ass. After some moments, the other car turned around in the roadway and went back down the road from which we had come. I kept making macho statements, but not totally without some sense about me. I drove home. I did not see the car again. I could not see the passenger seat, but the driver was a man with short hair and glasses. So, I find it interesting that he mentions directly that he couldn't see the passenger seat, because that would lead you to believe that he could tell there was someone in it. Otherwise, why would you acknowledge it? I think they were probably asking him, was there anybody with him? How many people were in the car? So this is a teenage couple being chased? Yes. By an Impala? Yes. Okay. Bitchin'. Bitchin' Impala. You sure? <laughs> I feel like Only it's a safe assumption. <laughs> so James Owen stated that he definitely saw a station wagon and another car he could not describe parked. Then, 30 seconds later, he heard a gunshot as he was driving by. Okay, I'm going to go on a limb here and announce that James Owen is sketchy. He's very inconsistent in his storytelling. For example, he says he's driving to work for the graveyard shift at the Standard Oil Company. And later, it's revealed that he called a friend that night and said he didn't have to go into work. Also, why can he describe the Rambler and not the other car? He saw them both an equal amount of time. This is odd. Also, he had guns. Lots of guns. Lots of guns. I don't know. I don't trust this Owen character, but continue. You also have Peggy and Homer Yore. Don't trust them either. We'll get there. I have a hangup about Peggy Yore. She's like the person I've picked out of this entire story to be like, what are you doing, woman? And they claim that they saw them parked there. Right. Just the one car, though. And she says that they were alive. They were definitely alive when they passed because they saw them move when the headlights came. Like, oh, shit, someone's coming. Yeah, they were making out and they <laughs> separated. And everyone's been there, too. Yeah. Everyone's been and, it, like, it's not a very, it's not a lover's lane in, like, you drive down a lane. It's like a little pull-off spot by a gate. So all these people could see them from the road. 
Peggy also confronted some raccoon hunters yes. <laughs> during her wild ride. Yes. And the police report on that is fantastic. It's like, interviewed Mrs. Jor. She stated she saw the Rambler. Then she said they were checking pipes. Her husband was a pipe checker. And th- she saw this man standing by a truck. And she said, oh, my God, he has a gun. When asked if she s- pulled out her own gun, waved it around and said, my gun's bigger than yours. She said she did not. Oh, yeah, right. Which leads me to believe that the raccoon hunters had reported that she pulled out her own gun. She definitely did. (laughs) Waved it around. And says, my gun is bigger than your gun. So at approximately 11.20 p.m., both victims were discovered lying on the gravel turnout by a passing motorist, Stella Borgia. She states that no cars were going in either direction while she was on the road. When she arrived at the scene, headlines picked up the car and she observed a boy. And he had looked like he had fallen out of the open door. The girl was lying on her side facing the road. She had a purple dress on and looked well-dressed. She saw only one car at the scene. It looked like a Rambler, grayish in color, and had a chrome rack on the top. She stated she drove 60 or 70 miles an hour en route to Benicia to report the incident. When she saw the police car, she honked her horn and blinked her lights to attract the attention of the police officers. And she's always very consistent in her statements, and she did go to alert the authorities as soon as she saw what had happened. So there are various lines of motive were considered by the police. This was before any letters, anything was sent. This was just some random killing of two teenagers. So some things that were checked into is that David was going to turn in a drug dealer at school for selling grass. Eagle Scout indeed. And he also had been kind of in verbal altercations with with another kid over Betty Lou Jensen on the Wednesday before the murders. It found a note from Betty to her friend saying that Ricky had called her and threatened Dave. Quote, he said if he ever was close enough to Dave, he'd punch him one in the teeth. That's a threat. But he was, Ricky Burton, that kid, was quickly ruled out. He had a really, really solid alibi. He's he watching was, a Bob Hope movie. Yeah, with his, like, dad and friends you know, this and is the most wholesome cast of characters you will ever have in a murder investigation. Now, the drug angle is very interesting. Yes. Because there were a crew of kids who were later arrested in connection with another murder that had happened the previous year of just a single male teenager. And in interviewing about that, two of these kids were named as accomplices. And there was this big redheaded kid. Yes. This is the quote throughout the entire thing. And they stated to an informant in the jail that they had been involved in the murder of Jensen and Faraday. Really? And that red had egged them on. And they had been present and he shot them. They definitely didn't shoot them. He shot them. And like he was known to be a distributor of drugs in the area. Grass. Of grass and among other things. Also meth. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there was like Hell's Angels up there selling all kinds of stuff. There were a lot of unsolved murders in the area, actually. But this was reported by a former detective named Terry Cunningham. And in the same handwritten account, he also says that Peggy Yore is an old troublemaker. Troublemaker. <laughs> I'm like, what is this woman's deal? She's waving her gun around. What's she doing with a gun? But police were concerned that there was a crazed killer on the loose. A lot of the kids said that they felt when that statement went out from Lundblad, who was in charge of the investigation along with Butterbach, they had the best names, that that was his signal like, waving a white flag. Like, I don't fucking know, guys. I don't know. But really, the strongest connection was kind of the drug thing. 
but really no answers. So that was December 20th, 1968. The next time anything gets linked to this is July 4th, 1969. It's about a half a year later. So at 12.40 a.m., a call comes into the Vallejo Police Department. A low, monotonous voice spoke in a rehearsed fashion. I want to report a murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Creepy. The two kids are Darlene Farron, a 22-year-old, who picked up her friend Michael Majot, who is 17, and they drove up to Blue Rock Springs Park, which was another kind of lover's lane kind of area, a place kids would go and party and stuff like that. She was a waitress, and she was married with a young child, Married to Majou? No, you know that. You know that. <laughs> Just clarifying. She left her child with a babysitter, saying that she was going to go get fireworks for a party with her husband and friends when he got off work. She goes, picks up Michael, and they head over to Mr. Ed's. You know who works at Mr. Ed's? Do you want to know? Do you want to know? Who? Peggy York. That's right. <laughs> She's the Zodiac Killer. Might be. Could be. Could be. As good as any other... <laughs> Like, seriously, she's as good as any other suspect. (laughs) Old troublemaker. But they turn around at Mr. Ed's and head over to Blue Rock Springs. Michael later told police that another vehicle pulled into the lot around midnight, only to return minutes later. Michael Majors stated, Darlene turned the lights and motor off and had the radio playing. They were there just a very short time, a few minutes, and three cars pulled into the parking lot where they were. They were apparently young kids, and they heard some laughing and carrying on. A few firecrackers were set off, and then three vehicles left within a short time. Shortly after this, about five minutes before the shooting occurred, a vehicle pulled into the lot. The driver turned the lights off on the car and pulled around to the left, or east side of the car, about six to eight feet away, and sat there for a few minutes. Zemejo asks Darlene if she knows who it is, and she says, Oh, never mind. The car leaves. Approximately five minutes later, the same brown car, thought to maybe be a Chevy Corvair, pulls in. The driver gets out of the car and shines a bright light into their car. Michael Joe thinks this has got to be a cop. He's busted. Like a plainclothes cop, he says. And he reaches for his ID, at which point the man raises his gun and without saying anything, fires five times point blank into the car, striking Michael and Darlene several times. Majeu stated that he heard a muffled sound, surmising that the gun sounded like it had a silencer on it. Michael was shot in the jaw, shoulder, and leg. Darlene was hit several times. Now Michael does jump into the back seat and lets out a whimper, so the killer returns and fires two more shots at each of them. Darlene did not survive, but Michael does. And he's the worst witness ever. <laughs> He's a terrible witness. So Darlene was driving a 63 Corvair. It was like a goldish beige. And I'm just putting this out there, just for the record. A 63 Corvair looks a lot like a 67 Grand Prix. And do you know how to goldish beige 67 Grand Prix? Who? Peggy Yor. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not letting it go. No cell phones. How do the cops find out about this? Is it the 1240 call? Well, in the police report, it... Tells about three other kids, Jerry, Roger, and Debbie, who were heading along the freeway and came into the park the back way. 
Quote, it was dark, and they looked for any vehicles. The only one they saw was the victim's brown Corvair. They were looking for, like, a girlfriend of theirs or something. They were mm. out, like, driving around looking for a girl. Mm. We've not all been there because we had cell phones. <laughs> and better supervision. <laughs> Maybe not everybody. So they find Michael wounded on the ground, and they leave to get help. He Ten. is able to talk with them. He says, like, call a doc. And they're nervous about reporting it because they assume if they report it, the cops will think they had they something to do it. with it. So yeah. Debbie says go to, like, I think it's a brother-in-law's house. He's a police officer. And so they go there, and they, like, talk it over with him. And he's like, no, you have to call. And so they leave, and she makes the phone call around 1210. So that comes in 30 minutes before our mysterious goodbye call. And that is something you will see reported incorrectly in a lot of writing about the Zodiac. That is a very common misconception that the first alert that the police had was from the killer himself. And so therefore only the killer himself could have made this phone call. Of course. But I say unto you, verily I say unto you, that scanners were a thing. Mm-hmm. So anybody listening to the radio like police radio could have made that phone call because at 1210, this call came in and a dispatch went out asking people to go see about the murdered people. Cause you're cops and that's your job. So the cops did pick this up before the Zodiac called on the scanners and went to check it out. Richard Hoffman, who was already in the area says he previously checked the park 15 minutes prior and found it clear. He said, I wasn't far away, so I turned around and went back out there and told dispatch I was going to go out there to check on that report. There's also much shade thrown on this dude. Why is that? Because Michael says it looks like a plainclothes cop, and he was a plainclothes cop who reported being in the area 15 minutes prior, and he would have had to literally have driven out of the parking lot as they drove in in order for them to be there They right amount of time for this to have taken place for the kids not to have encountered the murderer and for him not to have seen them or the three other kids it is very sketch it is very sketch so there's much shade directed at dude so michael was able to give a description of the killer he said he was heavy set standing about five eight beefy build not blubbery fat possibly 195 to 200 pounds Short, curly hair, light brown, almost blonde. In the end, the the man was not wearing glasses. But the Zodiac has to wear glasses. (laughs) I don't understand. Maybe he tried contacts and they just weren't for him. So they do get another call of somebody trying to give information. Right. Also around 1240. And it's Debbie's brother-in-law. Right. And he says he called police because he was afraid Debbie hadn't done it. He felt really weird about it and just wanted to make sure that it went through. And so since that call came in at the same time as the Zodiac call, some people have speculated it could have been the brother-in-law calling, say, I want to report murder and Mm. giving those directions. And the account that is first printed up in newspapers does not mention that I also killed those kids last year line. That's added the day after the news report comes out in Nancy Slover's official report of the incident which is not filed until the day after it comes out in papers but the call is traced from a gas station and so if it was him so that would be odd that someone would go out of their house to make a phone call if he was just if he was just calling to report something that he had no involvement in why would he leave his house well not everyone had landlines he was a young guy no i guess you're right i kind of forget about that you know who else calls to give in information Peggy York. Of course. And like the day after. Like she's calling at 11 a.m. on the 7th. Like she is on it. 
But anyway. So, but seriously, she shows up in both of these murder cases. I think she's just a troublemaker. Just a busybody? Is that what you're saying? Fine. Well, it may seem that Blue Rock Springs and Lake Herman are completely separate entities that have nothing to do with one another since two different police departments are taking care of the cases. Uh-huh. They're two miles apart. Oh, damn. They're basically in the same area. There's like a line right between. So Michael Majot's description of the suspect is pretty much the clearest part of his statement. And he remains pretty consistent about like what happened that night. Interestingly, he does like dye his hair red and leave town. He does like skip town after this yeah, big time. After he does a few interviews, he's gone. It's interesting. He has a twin brother named Steven. And Steven eventually like goes back and tries to play bait at the scene. <laughs> so again, this is all before any Zodiac letters are sent. Right, the most mysterious thing we have right now is this phone call. Very odd. And he is claiming the other murder. Right, and serial murder is a thing that's happening in 1969. In California. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it was kind of like, we're done with hippies. It's the cool thing to do. Let's go kill people. That's why it's called the Summer of Love. Right? So they were looking for possible suspects. And there were some really interesting things going on in Darlene's life. Like we said, she was married. Right. And so logically, the first thing you're going to say is, oh my God, well, obviously it's her husband. Of course. That's always the first one to rule out. And personally, I can't blame you. (laughs) That's what I thought. Thanks. But yeah, if I go missing, it's your fault. (laughs) But his name was Dean Farron, and he had a good alibi. His boss, William had been with him and actually reported to the station with him. He worked at Caesar's Palace in town, and William said, yes, he was with me. Yeah, there were rumors she was running around, but he doesn't want to see it. He just doesn't want to pay attention to it. He was turning a blind eye to all Right, right. And interestingly, in all the thousands of pages of police reports that I read, the only person who ever says, you keep my name out of the papers, is William. Dean's boss. I just found that an interesting outlier. He doesn't want to be named and pressed, doesn't want to talk to reporters, does not want to be mentioned in the news accounts. I wouldn't want to be associated with a double murder. I wouldn't want my name anywhere near that. But would you think to say it? It's almost like he knows it's about to go viral. (laughs) Darlene was messing around, without a doubt, and she had several suitors Mm -hmm. that were definitely sketch. Right. Among those is Gordon, who is one of the only people that admitted to being involved with Darlene, intimately acquainted with Darlene. Intimately. And he had left to go to do Navy training in Idaho. And they corresponded, and there was rumor that he sent her money, and she was planning to leave Dean and come meet him. But he says he never sent her money, and they only corresponded for a little while. And at some point, Darlene had told him that she was pregnant, but he assumed that she'd just gotten an abortion and moved on. Classy guy. He'd also left the, gone AWOL and left the Navy. Yeah. So he's sketchy. And there's also George that Darlene's sister recounts who was pursuing her and wanted to date her. She said, quote, he had a pink pickup and a brown car that she believes was a Corvair. Describes George as a very neat dresser, short, stocky, dark hair. He visited Darlene frequently, was very emotional, and would get all uptight when Darlene didn't pay too much attention to him. Michael's brother later stated that George had broken into Darlene's apartment and tried to rape her a few months prior. Or threatened to or something. It was a weird story. 
And also, the Farrens had sold him the pickup. So he's ruled out because he's very kind of forthcoming with where he was and the story. He doesn't have a great alibi. He also doesn't match the description that Michael gave. Right. He does the dark, straight hair. He's Filipino. Right. And all the reports say he's Mexican until you he's get to the not. one where they actually talk to him. Yeah, he's not. It's like, oh, honey. And oh, so, 70s and, racism. <laughs> and so there is a lot of speculation that someone that she knew because she says that, oh, never mind. Mm-hmm. Line. And also, her family receives these kind of deep breathing phone calls that night. And they couldn't have this trace. No, no. Now, another person that is very suspicious is Darlene's first husband. Yeah, bonus round. Yes, not only is she married now, she was married before. Which is fine. She's 22. (laughs) It's quick. (laughs) So James Philip Crabtree was originally... Not brought up at all. Wait, it's James Phillips slash Crabtree. He goes by Phillips when he and Darlene are married, but then goes and decides to take his birth name back. Uh, He was abandoned in a hospital and adopted by a family and took the last name Phillips, but then he gets all hippie. Like in Darlene's address book, you can see that he lives on hate in San Francisco. He grows a beard, opens his mind, and meets a new woman and goes on with his life with his new name and his new acid regimen. So no one brought him up. The family doesn't bring him up, is not brought up in the initial investigation. Now, years later, they get a tip, the Vallejo police, from Joseph DeLuise and his publicist. Is that like Dom's brother? I hope so. Quote, he had extraordinary power of ESP and has received vibrations that Jim Phillips, Starling's first husband, may have knowledge or be involved in her murder. And so being reasonable people, they're like, uh-huh, and go on with their life. Just kidding. No. They investigate the shit out of it. Well, they've got nothing. they got no leads. Well, and to be honest, he's pretty, he's a pretty good suspect. He's like highly emotional. They had divorced and gotten back together once. Yeah, already, again, they divorced, remarried, divorced. And he does change his name around that time, and his adoptive father has been a police officer. If he was, like, kind of imitating the the stance or moves of a police officer, that almost makes sense. Like, there were suspects, but he's ruled out on the basis of uh, fingerprints and handwriting, which we will discuss how often, how often that, that sinks this ship. So now this starts to go viral July 31st of 1969, when the Vallejo Times-Herald receives a letter. It says, Dear Editor, I am the killer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl last 4th of July. To prove this, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas. 1. Brand name of ammo, Super X. 2. 10 shots fired. 3. Boy was on back, feet to car. 4. Girl was lying on right side, feet to west. Fourth of July. Girl was wearing patterned pants. Two. Boy was also shot in knee. Three. Brand name of ammo was Western. Here is a cipher, or that is, part of one. The other two parts have been mailed to the San Francisco Examiner and the San Francisco Chronicle. I want you to print the cipher on your front page by Friday afternoon. If you do not do this, I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. That will last the whole weekend. I will cruise around and, and pick off all stray people or couples 
that are alone, then move on to kill some more until I've killed over a dozen people. So he does mail this to the other two papers as well with different ciphers. And the letters are odd. Right, because they're not exactly identical. Now, he does make the same spelling errors pretty much in each of them. And there are a few differences. They are rife with spelling errors and not I before E except after C kind of spelling errors. Like, almost like not natural, not not intuitive, I guess, is the word you would use. But there are also like minor changes in the text at the end of each letter. Right. So the Vallejo paper is the only one that mentions couples. Interesting. The other two mention single people. And in the San Francisco Chronicle paper, it says, in this cipher is my identity. So these three ciphers each contained 136 characters and combined equals 408 characters. So it's kind of known as the 408 cipher. Cool. So the text is evenly spaced on each line. The symbols range from almost alchemical or zodiac-related symbols to just standard Phoenician alphabet letters, no numbers. You're right, there are no numbers. There are some like geometric figure-looking things and some like half-shaded circles and triangles and squares and it's it's not a standard alphabet by any means. And some of the letters are backwards. It's really odd. So then, so that is printed up front page of all three papers. Right. And it's got these details in it. Things only the police and I know. That's right. So police chief Jack E. Stilts of Vallejo is on the record in the papers requesting the writer to send a second letter with more facts to prove it. So this mysterious letter writer sends in a letter he obliges yeah august 4th of 1969 this is the zodiac speaking so we have a name this is where we get the name hot damn in answer to your asking for more details but the good times i've had in vallejo i shall be very happy to supply even more material by the way are the police having a good time with the code if not tell them to cheer up when they do crack it they'll have me On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards. At the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor, and back, thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engines as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly so as not to draw attention to my car. The man who told police that my car was brown was a Negro about 40 to 45, rather shabbily dressed. I was in this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cop when he was walking by. When I hung the phone up, the damn thing began to ring, and that drew his attention to me and my car. Last Christmas, in that episode, the police were wondering how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night. I could see silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice in the center of the beam of light, if you aim at the wall or ceiling, you'll see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light, about three to six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it were a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sight. I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage. 
signed the zodiac symbol, now infamously known, kind of a crosshairs, and then written under it in like a scrawl, no address. So the zodiac symbol is a circle with a cross through it. Yes. But like a equally spaced cross, like not a Christian cross, but like a plus sign. A plus sign. And it extends out of the circle. So now you know. You've, it's probably the one thing you know about this, <laughs> is what it looks like. So bring up each point that he brings up in the papers. You mean all the things that he knows that only he and the police would know? Yes. Okay. So let's see. He says some important points. In the first letters, he says that the ammo was super X and the 10 shots were fired. So, fun fact, I have been through so many newspapers, I may actually die. And I did finally find news reports that do state that 10 shots were fired. So, in the Vallejo News Chronicle on December 23rd, it does state, it was also revealed for the first time that 10 22 caliber long rifle bullet casings were found at the murder scene. One slug was fired through the window. So I'm assuming that if you had some knowledge of guns, you might be able to deduce what kind of long range rifle ammo could be used in an automatic pistol. Or it might have been mentioned somewhere yeah. else. But I did finally track down that 10 bullet casings were found because that was the one that was confounding me. But that went out on the 23rd, just three days after the murder. So the boy was on his back, feet to car. Girl was lying on her right side, feet to the west. This is interesting because Miss Borgia that drives by describes the scene backward, which is understandable. Very understandable. In detail, but backward. And there were, as he said, multiple people that came out and reported and everyone was freaking interviewed. All the kids were shown crime scene photos. This could have been pretty common knowledge in the area. But on top of that, in the police files, there's a giant compass rose on the sketch of how the victims were found, you can't miss that the victim's feet are pointed west. Right. Like, it, it's very well highlighted. And you may be wondering why I'm bringing up police files, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The boy's feet are facing the car, but everyone says that it looked like he stepped out of the car and was shot in the back of the head, in which case, if he fell away from the car, his feet would be toward the car. Think about easy that. To deduce. Easy to deduce. So that, that one's interesting. You can figure it out. And speaking of the police files, the reason I bring that up is that one of the statements that he says is in the 4th of July one. Mm-hmm. Is that the girl was wearing patterned pants. Now, that's wrong. It's factually inaccurate. She was wearing a dress. Right. Not patterned pants. It was a dress she'd made herself with a floral print fabric. There's a close-up photo of the print of the dress in the police evidence files. But not a picture of the whole dress. No, that didn't come out. However, Michael Majot was wearing like three shirts, three pairs of pants, weird for July. He says he was really scrawny. And he needed all those clothes. That's sketch. We're not even going to why he was wearing all that. There's a theory that he was a robber. There is. Continue. But in the evidence photos, there are two pairs of pants. And there's this floral print. And there's no shirt, so the floral print must be on the pants. Must be. Why would there be two pairs of pants in black and white? And then this photo of this floral pattern. Like, who wears two pairs of pants? Why would you ever guess someone was wearing two, two pairs, pairs of, of pants. pants? Weird coincidence. In the Lake Herman Road murders, Betty Lou was wearing two pairs of panties. 
We're not going to that either. <laughs> Just saying, like, maybe this is the fashion police. Who can tell? But so this indicate to draw this conclusion, one would have to look at the evidence photos and misconstrue them. Or just make it up. Or make it up whole cloth. There's good logic that he'd seen these photos. Oh, and that Michael Majot is shot in the knee. That's in papers. That and, the window was rolled down. Well, and the other reporting on, like assuming he hasn't seen police reports, on the reporting on Lake Herman Road... It states in all the papers that a window was shot out. States it over and over and over again. So maybe he was like, so when he read about the window being shot out over and over and over again, he'd be like, this would be a detail that would be mentioned if the window had been shot out. Window must have been down. So it's interesting because in a lot of the papers, it's reported that the killer tore the door open. I ripped it open and started shooting at him. But in the police reports, the early, early police reports, Maggio says that the window was rolled down. Right. Now, there was writing later that the door handle was pulled off the car, and that's why Majot couldn't exit the vehicle. That's just crazy. Not that he'd been shot in the arm. That had nothing to do with it. And then someone replaced it. And then when the police came, it was mysteriously back in place. That is the worst logic I've ever heard. There's some crazy crackpot theories. I don't even know why that matters. I guess maybe they could get prints off of it. I don't know. I don't know what the thought was. Also, he states that the phone started ringing after he hung it up. Here's a fun, fun, fun thing to think about. At this point, ringback was not installed on the payphones in the Vallejo area. However, it was installed in San Francisco, where the letter was postmarked from. That's correct. We didn't mention that. So this is impossible. Also, the 45-year-old man that told cops that he had a brown car is in none of the police reports. He does not seem to exist. Yeah, we couldn't find that in police reports or papers or anything. So I don't know where that came from. But His that's, ass. That's, so lots of inconsistencies there. Things that either are incorrect or could only be surmised if they're not just made up whole cloth from looking at the police records. So on August 8th of 1969, just a week after the three letters had arrived, the 408 cipher was cracked by Donald Jean and Betty June Harden. Were they code breakers from the FBI? They were um, high school teachers. Awesome. Like, this makes me think of you so hard. They were, like, doing this with their coffee in the morning. That's what we were doing. It was just at night. I know. They were from Salinas, California, and they used a homophonic substitution to identify the solution. The translated cipher turned out to be just kind of ramblings about, like, how awesome he was. Now, the solution was verified by a cryptanalyst at the FBI. They spent about 20 hours working on it. Now, the writer used a backwards cue 16 times to try to lure the analyst into thinking that it was the E. Which would be like the most common letter. Right. But the code was, was broken, Harden said, by looking for four-letter patterns, which fit the word kill. Now, their work was praised by Dr. D.C.B. Marsh, a mathematician at Colorado School of Mines, who heads the American Cryptogram Association. He called the code complicated and obviously drawn by someone who knows his business. It's like someone had to know what they were doing. And like nowadays we solved those ciphers just by Googling different cipher keys. I did one hard tack. Like I did one with like the Baconian cipher was the only one where I like sat around with a piece of paper and worked it out. But no, most of them are done by digitally manipulating your text. Right. And I assume that whoever is creating that page is also using those same tools 
He's relying on things that are accessible to everyone. But the cipher decoded to read the following. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest. Because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is when I die, I will be reborn in paradise. And all the people I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow me down or stop my collecting of slaves for the afterlife. E-B-E-O-R. Yeah, there's a bunch of letters. Like, there's a little bit at the end that is undecipherable. So, the... Code is cracked, and this begins the longest running pattern in these Zodiac letters, which is him setting himself up to do things. And not doing them. And not doing them. He says, I will give you my name. Don't worry. Once they crack it, they will have me. I will not give you my name. It's very like dueling banjos. So the next event that happens that's tied to the Zodiac is on September 27th, 1969. So this is about less than two months after the last This is the Zodiac speaking letter comes out. Mm -hmm. So Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were relaxing along the shores of Lake Berryessa, about 20 miles north of Napa. They heard this rustling. They were in a very isolated area. It was like a peninsula that went on into the lake. It was a man-made reservoir. So Cecilia looks up and sees a guy in the distance, and he's stepping behind a tree. And she tells Brian, there's a man. And he looks up, and she says, he went behind the tree. And Brian thinks that she means that he's taking a leak. Mm -hmm. Logical assumption, Brian. You will see that Brian makes many logical assumptions. He says, then she squeezed my arm and said, oh my god, he's got a gun. A man appeared holding a gun and wearing a hooded costume with a white crossed circle stitched over the chest. In the police report, suspect stated to the victims, I want your money and your car keys. I'm an ex-con from Montana Deer Lodge. I have a stolen car and have nothing to lose. He orders Brian to sit down. Brian keeps kind of trying to talk to him because, you know, he's... A sociology major. A sociology major. My God, he's now an attorney. He and talks like an attorney. He is. I found it. I finally I know, confirmed it. He does yes. like, at this time. And he orders Brian to sit down. He pulls out these about three foot lengths of plastic cord and orders Cecilia to bind Brian. And she does so, but she does so loosely. And he later, man in the mask, comes back and tightens up the knots and then ties Cecilia up. Right. As Brian's trying to talk to him, he then stabs him six times. He then stabs Cecilia three times. From the report, female victim was turned over. And she was again stabbed approximately four times in the front area, once in each breast, once in the groin area, and once in the abdomen area. After this, the suspect then walks away. And doesn't take the car. Right. Doesn't need the car to get to Mexico from Deer Lodge Prison in Montana, apparently. He said he killed a guard right. in his daring escape. But he's wearing a very elaborate getup. The mask is described as ingeniously devised by Brian. He says that it has, it almost looks like a paper bag turned upside down. Like it's got four corners and it comes down like a mid chest length. And that the symbol on the garment was symmetrical and well-made. So Brian's calls for help are answered by a fisherman. Mr. Fong. Yes. And so he rides off to a local resort and returns with Park Ranger White, along with Mr. and Mrs. White, no relation, who own the boat repair shop and they returned via boat so at the time ranger dennis land 
hears the call and leaves the station and arrives at the scene to find Brian 300 yards off the road. The police report states that park ranger Dennis Land was at the scene when officers, Ray Land, his brother, arrive. So the Whites are no relation, but the Lands are relations. Okay. So at some point, the Zodiac has scrawled on the car door, Vallejo, 12, 20, 68, 7, 4, 69, September, or Sept, 27, 69, 6.30, by knife. So when police officers were en route, the police received a phone call. I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. And after a brief pause, the dispatcher asked, Where are you? He responded, I'm the one that did it. Then they hear him put the phone down, but not hang it up. And this was traced to a payphone at a car wash in Napa. So the officer that took the call was Officer Slate. He was a rookie cop, and it was his job every day to come in and cover for the dispatchers while they went on their lunch break. So he just happened to be there at that time. Now, he got a trace started on the call while he got on the other line to call officers and let them know that he'd received a call from this man purporting to be the assailant. So he's doing two things at once. He calls the operator. She says that it's from a payphone. So he called an operator and asked to be connected to the police. So when he called the operator, she explained that the man had been calling from a payphone, which she assumed was a payphone, but he declined to give the number of the phone. And so he ran a trace because the line was open while on the other line, he was simultaneously contacting the officers in the case. So then Officer Snook was dispatched to the scene of the telephone. Once they got the trace. Right. And he got there and two volunteer police officers had secured the scene and he was in charge of photographing it. Here we come to an interesting point. The call was never actually traced. It didn't have to be. Why not? Because it went out over the radio. Right. That the suspect had called and a local reporter got to the scene and started shouting, can you hear me? Can you hear me? What? This is insane piece of information. This was in a 2007 documentary. The Zodiac Speaking. Yes. In which they interview Officer Slate and he recounts the story. He says he never put it in any official reports. And it's not. But you can find evidence that something has gone awry with the telephone when you look at the evidence photos compared to the police reports. Right. Because the police reports state that the phone was set down on the shelf and they describe it in great detail like pointing southwest and like it's very well documented however when reviewing photos of the payphone it's dangling and these photos were taken by the officer that wrote the report so there had to be a reason that he allowed that discrepancy to stand this is not a smoking gun this is not anything all that incriminating But it does kind of give you the idea that maybe the officers in this case are willing to kind of stretch the truth to cover their own behinds. (laughs) And it does make me wonder, what reporter was there? That is never revealed. So now one of the police officers in the documentary recounts this long conversation that he had with Cecilia as she was laying there dying. There's no documentation to back this up, even though he says he wrote it down. But there is an interview with Miss White, who came via boat, where she was over there trying to comfort Cecilia as they were waiting for the ambulance. And she said, he was a man with a hood. 
His face was covered. He was wearing black pants. It hurts. And then as she regains her composure, she says, She told her the man asked for money, but didn't take any. He was wearing glasses with dark clip-on sunglasses over the hood. Now, this is interesting because in this video interview years later, Deputy Collins recalls a very lengthy and in-depth conversation with Cecilia, where he goes and like pantomimes the attack and stands away from her and says, was he taller than me? How fat was he? How skinny was he? And she answers all these questions. And he also claims that she saw him before he put the hood on and has a description of his face. And he gets this information and it's very, you know, right on the money matches all the other descriptions, which is interesting because none of the descriptions match each other. But he goes on at length about this. And there is no evidence in his report. In his written report, it does say, talk to victims, victims said, victims, plural. But there's no reason to believe that it's not Brian, because Brian's testimony is recounted over and over again. And there are certain words he uses, and it's all those words. Yes. And so Cecilia did die two days later. And there are no interviews with her within the police report other than those few statements that I said. Because every time they bring her up, they're like, she's in surgery. The doctor said we can't talk to her. And some writing on her... Later, it's speculated that the reason that she died of her injuries is because she had a more rare blood type and they couldn't get the transfusions needed. But, I mean, that's impossible to say. I just thought it was interesting. But Brian survives. Oh, does he? And he is quite loquacious. Oh, my Jesus. He talks like me. <laughs> like, people want to say Brian's very suspicious because he's always so composed and speaks in full sentences and, you know, is so articulate. And that's just really strange. But... I find it incredibly endearing. <laughs> right. He, is, he gives this news report interview. He is still in the hospital bed, in a hospital gown. He's like, the first thing you told the deputy was to give some idea of a description. At the beginning, I did think I was going to die. And from that moment on, one has to have goals. And my first goal, of course, was... No, well, you can't, can't do, do it. it. Let's play it. We don't do that a lot, but... You, you need hear to hear guy. this guy. Exclusive enough to link the murderer of Celia Shepard to other murders in the Vallejo area in the past year. If I remember right, in speaking with one of the deputies uh, who was investigating this thing, he said that the first thing you told a deputy was to give some idea of a description of the man. Do you understand now how your mind was able to work that well <laughs> under those conditions? That You really did an exceptional job in that. Well, through the whole thing, like I mentioned before, I, at the beginning, I did think I was going to die. And so from that moment on, one has to have certain goals that you have to set. The first goal, of course, was to live. I suppose the second goal was to uh, get untied. Uh, the next one was to get help. From getting help, getting to the hospital. You know, you have to have a, a successful yes. set of goals. And if you can keep this going and you can keep your mind active, whether you die or not, you're at least psychologically attuned, whether uh, you're in shock or not. If you can keep arguing with yourself, uh, praying, uh, uh, doing, doing anything to keep your mind off of yourself, or at least just not lapsing back and just saying, well, it's no use. Brian will probably be able to leave Queen of the Valley Hospital fairly soon. But where he's going from here is being kept secret in the event that 
The man who attacked him and killed Cecilia Shepard on Lake Berryessa a week ago Saturday tries again. Brian made it for two reasons some people might regard as intangibles, but reasons that for him were enough. A strong faith and an equally strong will to live. Dave Monsies, Eyewitness News, at Queen of the Valley Hospital, Napa. So, right, he's like extremely well-spoken. <laughs> but also, funny thing is that he is like, oh, does my girlfriend know about this? He's like, I really need to explain this to her before it gets in the papers. And they're like, good luck with that, Junior, <laughs> basically. But some of his interviews are really sad. He's like, I think Cecilia might know that. We should ask her. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really, God. And he crawls 200 feet up a, oh, yeah. up the side of a hill to get to the road. Oh, and yeah, when Dennis Land gets him, he's like, leave me. Go get her. The girls hurt much worse. Yeah. I mean, he's like, he's a rock star. He's really hardcore. And I am very impressed with his will to live and ability to get up that hill. I cannot believe he did that. So with this case, there's a whole lot of no suspects. (laughs) Well, it's automatically linked to the Zodiac. It must be because he has the mask with the Zodiac symbol on it. And he did the writing and he claimed the other two murders and that all Makes sense, right? This must be the Zodiac Killer. So we are not looking for a killer here specific to this area. We are looking for this serial killer. So there's really not a great MO in the other two cases. Well, no, that's actually very consistent. It's couples in parked cars two miles from each other. Yeah. He shoots through the window, right? So he shoots through an open window in one case. He shoots through a, a glass window in another case. So that's consistent. The... Weapon doesn't match, but that's not necessarily disqualifying. Oh, no. Because it could have been a couple of people who each had a gun or something like that. Or he could have had more than one gun. Yeah, or could ditch the gun from the first murder right. and use a different one. I mean, it's not hard to get guns. They just stopped doing mail order. That's Thanks, true. Bobby Kennedy. That's true. Guns used in both instances. In the second murder, we know he doesn't speak. Yeah. And there's no mask. Right. Both on weekends. At night. Right, and this is in the middle of the day. So this case gets tied to the Zodiac because of the writing on the car. And the outfit. And the outfit, this black hood that has four corners, that has eye holes cut out, that's it, with sunglass clippings over it, with a bib, and the Zodiac symbol was become known as the Zodiac symbol, like usually described as like stitched in, like not drawn on. And the phone call. And the phone call. But it's during the day. It's with a knife. Yeah, over the right. Right. He, and he has a gun. Right. And he doesn't use it. He chooses to use the knife. Which is odd. He binds them. He demands money out the gate, like right off the top. He approaches on foot instead of in a car. They are physically out of the ver- their vehicle and like at least 200 feet off the road. Yeah. And he's, wear- he's freaking cosplaying. Yeah, he's got this weird costume that's obviously... He's trying to play the Zodiac Killer. He wouldn't have put the big logo. And then also, I don't think I mentioned on the car with the writing is the big Zodiac logo as well. So let's play along for two minutes. Who could it have been if it wasn't the Zodiac Killer? I have a theory. Oh, do you? Peggy York. Oh, God. <laughs> she does not show up She's in this one. She does not show up again. I'm sorry if you thought that was our theory. So whoever called... Whoever made that phone call had to dial the operator and be connected to police, which leads me to believe that they were not 
from the area. Could be, or he just didn't know it off the top of his head. Or he wanted to be connected by an operator. There's also the suspicious reporter who answers the phone. Very odd. That is the oddest thing in like this whole <laughs> case to me. You have your anonymous reporter. I have my Peggy or we all get attached to things. There's also like a stranger that's seen kind of in the vicinity of the payphone that they call the Creeper, which is mm-hmm. a great name. That's good. And they get a they get a sketch drawn up. Um, they interview multiple people, and it's this like guy with dark hair that wear, he wears sweat back over his ears. And there's that guy. There's Brian's girlfriend. But these kids are not involved in the same social circles, obviously, as the younger kids from Vallejo. But one theory that appeals to me is the idea that it could have been someone within the police department or within the law enforcement agency. Like who? Uh, I don't know. I I wonder about Dennis Land. Why is that? Because he has access to any part of the park. And also the person that calls says they're about two miles north of park headquarters. So someone knew the area well. Right. And it's a strange landmark to use right, right to not just say like the lake Berryessa peninsula or like the name of the road or whatever and then he's the first on scene he's the first on scene i have some questions about how he got the dispatch and how that all worked out he also finds brian and it does seem really odd to me to the idea of picking somebody up and putting them in your vehicle and driving them back to your scene instead of turning around and flying off to the emergency room when you see the kid's been stabbed six times I mean, that can't be procedure. I don't know. I mean, they probably were supposed to call an ambulance. Right, but it took, like, it took a long while for the ambulance to get there. I, I don't know. That strikes me as really strange. His brother's on the police force as well. Now, the lands are not big talkers. Collins does all the talking. All and the man, talker. does he talk. But they don't come out and do interviews on the subject. So not saying he did it, but it's suspicious. But really the most important thing is that since it's linked to the Zodiac due to the costume and due to the writing on the car, they don't do this deep investigation like it would be an isolated murder. It's automatically like an ongoing case. It's part of a larger investigation from the minute it happens. There are moments when the police express doubt about it being linked because it's such a different M.O., yeah, one Napa police officer said, I view it as a sex crime. I think he knows he needs help. And they were just constantly asking, like, come, we'll help you, we'll help you. It's kind of funny. But they, they like, were very set that this is the Zodiac. And so interestingly, no letters come out after this. This is my biggest what the hell. This is the thing that does not make sense to me. Like, if this is one guy... And this is what he's doing with his time off. And he is taken up cross-stitching to make a costume. And he's like written his name on the door or his symbol on the door and all these other things. Why wouldn't you write it up? Like he is so braggy. I like killing. Killing's fun. Killing's the best assist. Let me give you some insider knowledge to prove that I did it. Where is he on this? Nowhere. There's like one tiny little thing he claims that we'll mention later, but that's it. Like it's, it's barely, barely a nod to it. Right. And one thing that does appear in the Chronicles 
coverage of the Lake Berryessa attack is that the police are mum. They're not giving any information. And there was specific information that was withheld from the public for years. For example, the by knife being written on the bottom of the door. That was actively kept out of the press, which is amazing because nothing else was. And Brian Hartnell was talking ad nauseum to anyone who wanted to talk. So it was covered in the media, but the Zodiac didn't see fit to cover it. No, the next thing that happens in the kind of canonical Zodiac events occurs on October 11th of 1969. So that's like two weeks later? Yeah, just two weeks later. My God, he's escalating. So Paul Stein, a 28-year-old PhD student and husband, worked as a cab driver in San Francisco. So this one's in the city. And he's just, is he driving a cab? Yeah. When it happens. Yeah. So, so that, a single male driving a cab. Yes. Okay. So that night, he picked up a fare asking to go to Presidio Heights. And now the passenger shot Stein in the head, one shot, killing him. Now police radio broadcasts mistakenly described the suspect as a black man. They had three teenagers that witnessed the event and called it in. They described him as a white male, 25 to 30 years old, 5'8 to 5'9, stocky build, reddish-brown hair worn in a crew cut, heavily rimmed glasses, and dark clothing. And they saw him rifling through Paul Stein's clothing and also wiping fingerprints from the car. Passing officers dismissed a white man resembling the correct description. The broadcast, the... Black male broadcast is not mentioned in any of the police reports. From the time. Right. Because later, realizing the miss, when they heard the correct broadcast, Patrolman Folk wrote an internal memo saying, I respectfully wish to report the following, that responding to the area of Cherry and Washington Street, a suspect fitting the description of the Zodiac Killer was observed by Officer Folk walking in an easterly direction on Jackson Street, and then turned north on Maple Street. But he didn't send this in until a month later. What could have prompted him to send this in? Well, that's a good question, because everyone at the time thought it was just a routine robbery. Well, and was anything taken? Yeah. What? His wallet and his keys. Oh my god. Oh. I would think it was oh, a routine robbery. Yeah. And they, they drew the sketch up from that eyewitness account. Those three teenagers. And when I say teenager, they were 13 and 14. Kids, those kids. Now, the reason that Officer Folk may have written that memo, and probably did, was because two days later, on October 13th, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did end the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles, seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tires and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. Blood-stained piece of shirt? Oh, yeah. Isn't that weird? That's crazy. It's like the kidney in the Jack the Ripper mystery. Right? Hmm. 
And he says that the cops missed him. Like the Jack the Ripper case. Anyway, that's a different episode. Dear boss, my goodness. Okay, so this comes in two days after the murder. So he is Johnny on the rat hole in this instance. Yes. Eager to write. Kids in the North Bay area is a very broad statement. Very broad. What address does he say? Washington and Maple Street. But that's not where it happened. It is not. It happened in Washington and Cherry. Correct. How does that happen? I don't know. (laughs) Well, if you wouldn't you think if the cab was parked that he would know where he was? Yeah, you would think so. Huh. It's odd. It's odd. But by the way, no bus tires were shot out. No kitties were shot. (laughs) But I mean, the most damning piece of evidence in this is the blood stained shirt. Oh, I'm going to have a small dissertation on Paul Stein's shirt set to the music of Liberace with interpretive dance a little later. No, no. Okay, fine. Just the first part. So to give more context, October 19th, an article in the Chronicle, police swamped by phone calls. Captain Bird from the Vallejo police said, look at the pattern. We could tell from that. They were all his, even if he hadn't connected them. Bullshit, mama. There's no M.O. Are you really telling me that a random cabbie with nothing written on the doors, no signature left at the scene, who was actually robbed in the middle of the city, would have set off some little bell in your mind that this is our guy? No. October 20th, savage killing of a baby girl. Police were unable to establish a link in the one-year-old child's death with the five murders attributed to the Zodiac. Well, somebody had some sense. But everyone thought it was the Zodiac. Oh. Then, October 22nd, 1969, Oakland police take a call in the early morning hours from someone claiming to be the Zodiac, requesting that either Melvin Belli or Francis Lee Bailey, high-profile lawyers at the time, appear on a chat show Hosted by Jim Dunbar later that day. Effley Bailey is like still around for OJ. Like he's he's a big deal and he stays a big deal. And, and, and Bella like represented Black Panthers and like all this kind of stuff. Okay, so he's a high profile kind of like defense yes. attorney. and People okay. know his name. So he's like Johnny Cochran? Yeah. Does it, he dress as cool as Johnny Cochran? In the David Fincher movie, he kind of... <laughs> So, as the Desert Sun reported, a troubled man who said he was the Zodiac Slayer of five persons pleaded for help, complained of headaches, and cried out, I've got to kill. During a two-hour series of Bizarre Conversations Wednesday on a television talk show. He stayed on the phone for two hours. However, he failed to keep two surrender appointments with attorney Melvin Belli, who told the caller, all of San Francisco wants to help you. The hand is out. You can feel the hands out. Cool. By the way, they ask him if he has a name they can call him. It's Sam. I told you I was the Zodiac. I knew it. So I believe that is a son of Sam thing. I think this is somebody who's just following serial killers in the news. Oh, could be. Yeah. So a lot of people, even at the time, did not think this was legit. Curious. Yeah. And so the person that's reporting... Doing most of the reporting in the San Francisco Chronicle on this case is a guy named Paul Avery. Or Robert Downey Jr. Right. If you're familiar with the movie. 
Paul Avery had been a war correspondent in Vietnam. He'd like been embedded with the San Francisco Police Department and gone through training as part of a story. He was angling for a job with LA Times. He had really thought he was going to get a Pulitzer while he was in Vietnam. That would have been nice. Stole it from out from under him. And so he was on it. He was the crime beat reporter. He was on the Zodiac shit. Yes. Yeah, so he writes an article. That wasn't Zodiac, says three who know. <laughs> he plays the voice to the three people who have heard his voice. Uh-huh. So that's Slover, Slate, and... Oh, conspiracies. And Brian. Right. And, quote, all agree the voice sounded too young and also less sure of itself than Zodiac. So October 27th article in the Chronicle, The Zodiac Case. Public hysteria. Going public hysteria spurred on by popular press characterization of the killer as a frustrated genius and well-publicized offers to Zodiac to tell his story. Things just really take off. November 8th, arsenic and soft drink. Zodiac? Question Question mark? Daniel Williams, a 24-year-old teacher, had been receiving threatening phone calls from someone claiming to be the Zodiac and that he intended on killing others. Calls began October 23rd. He would sob and complain of headaches. Cute. Which this was the day after. The Melvin Belli Dunbar thing. Call-in show where he complained of that. The last Sunday, the caller told Williams, You're the dead duck. Returning home, later in the day, Williams found someone had pried open the screen of the back door. He called the cops. They checked it out. Nothing to worry about. He goes in to take a swig of soda and spits it out due to it tasting metallic. The soda contained cyanide bullshit did it really the news article says the police confirmed it but he could have put it there he could have but he, i i could i did not spend an hour tracking down that police report i apologize this is why i didn't get to do these this is why you're like nope you stick to canon that's right so the next contact from the zodiac is november 8th 1969 this is of course not counting the arsenic and the phone calls right Sent to the San Francisco Chronicle, as all of these letters have been. So in the beginning, he wrote to the Vallejo News Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and the San Francisco Chronicle. And then he decided he had like a man crush on Paul Averly. He always put an L in his name. (laughs) Paul Avery was like, I'm sure he knows my byline ego. (laughs) And does it just to fuck with me, basically. (laughs) But then he decided that he would just write to Paul Averly. Yeah, and sometimes it's addressed to him, sometimes it's just addressed to the editor. So he sends a card to the Chronicle. It was actually really clever. It's a greeting card, and on the front there's a pen hanging by a piece of string. It says, I'm sorry I haven't written, but I just washed my pen. And then if you open it up, there's like drippy, squiggly writing inside. It says, and I can't do a thing with it. Adorable. You're right. And the writing says, this is the Zodiac speaking. I thought you would need a good laugh before you hear the bad news. You won't get the news for a while yet. P.S. Could you print this new cipher in your front page? I get awfully lonely when I'm ignored. So lonely I could do my thing. I don't like that phrasing. And then it says December, July, August, September, October equals seven. Other than the North Bay area. Offhand mentioned. Which is usually not called the Bay Area. I know. It's when we've driven there from like, San Francisco. It's a good hour to mm-hmm. north. The month is the only other thing that could be construed 
as claiming the Lake Berryessa attack. Right. And there's also August. Right. And that's. We have no word on August. And this contained the 340 cipher, which has never been solved. Speaking of ciphers. We're going to make one up and it's going to be awesome. Go to our website or one of our social media feeds. You'll see the image artwork for this show. There will be a cipher. First one to solve it gets a prize. It's not a murder. (laughs) It's not a piece of bloody shirt. Damn it. I was going to send him a piece of bloody shirt. That would be a really fucked up thing to do. (laughs) We should make it a Patreon. Like for half a second, I was like, we should do it now. (laughs) (laughs) But the 340 cipher, yes, has never been solved. And if you would like to watch people angrily wait for a computer to finish doing its thing. Its thing. You may watch the new show on the History Channel. Which is really not very good. It's really not. The computer makes spontaneous love poetry. It's weird. I think it's the best part of the show. It's creepy. It is creepy. No, but there's more bloody shirt in that card, right? Right. Another piece of the bloody shirt. So on November 9th, just the next day, San Francisco Chronicle receives a seven-page letter. This is the Zodiac speaking. Up to the end of October, I've killed seven people. I have grown rather angry with the police for their telling lies about me. So I shall change the way the collecting of slaves. I shall no longer announce to anyone. When I commit my murders, they shall look like routine robberies, killings of anger, and a few fake accidents, etc. He describes kind of how off the police are, and then he says, P.S. Two cops pulled a goof about three minutes after I left the cab. I was walking down the hill to the park when the cop car pulled up and one of them called me over, asked if I saw anyone acting suspicious or strange in the last five to ten minutes. I said, yes, there was a man who was running by, waving a gun, and the cops peeled rubber and went around the corner as I directed them. I disappeared into the park a block and a half away, never to be seen again. Hey, pig, doesn't it rile you up to have your nose rubbed in your boo-boos? So he's 13. So this happens before Fook writes his internal memo. Right, but he doesn't describe this event occurring. The officers involved maintained that they spoke to no one, that this interaction never took place, and they did, like, see a guy. They saw a dude. Which, okay. Dudes exist. They walk on streets. White guys, even. So they saw a dude. Cool. Whatever. But this interaction did not take place, as described. But I do think this probably did spur this and the other letter folk to write the memo. Yeah. Without a doubt. He was like, oh, by the way, I did see something. Saw a dude. So in this letter, he also includes this elaborate plan for this bus bomb. It is redonkulous, this plan. And this is why you have people saying that Ted Kaczynski was the Zodiac killer. Or that he had special military training. So my argument against that is, first of all, it's a very crude diagram. And anyone could just look up a basic kind of how to build a bomb and draw this. You may say, but they didn't have the internet then. But you know what they did have? Libraries. Libraries. For example, William Powell in 1969 left his job at a Greenwich Village bookstore to fight the man. Cool. And he wrote The Anarchist Cookbook. Cool. He did this by studying publications and military handbooks, all in the open stacks of the New York Public Library. The book includes many rudimentary drawings of bombs, how to make drugs, etc. And fun fact. Fun fact? He later became a Christian. 
<laughs> and denounced the whole thing and said it should be pulled. But it so was, the man got him after yeah, all. Yeah, uh, yeah, just Jesus, better than the man at least. Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Who's outnumbered? So there's literally no reason to think that someone that would go read a cipher book in the library couldn't also go read about building a bomb, especially and draw like some rudimentary diagram. And by the way, was never built. Right. Or at least never went off. And he also says, anybody that thought I would just shoot children is fucked in the head or something to, to that effect. He doesn't curse much. He's a better person than we are. Sure. Apparently. Apparently. That's so. the line. So then we get more Zodiac headlines. And all these I kind of think are, so are all crime Zodiac related. November 22nd, Dave Martin goes berserk, quote, and tries to kill his 11-year-old daughter. And witnesses report him yelling, I am the Zodiac. November 26th, headline, Zodiac-like ambush. Raphael Norbert Kolar, 56, has been hit at least five times by a hail of bullets fired from a 9mm automatic pistol, the same type of weapon Zodiac used to kill on two occasions. Definitely him. Both definitely him. I feel like hearing somebody scream out, like, I'm the Zodiac, is the equivalent of hearing someone scream out, Allah Akbar. Like, it's like that automatically makes him a terrorist. Yeah. So another interesting development is December 20th, a little more than a month after the last letter, Melvin Belli receives a letter. At his home. And the writer feared he would kill again and asked Belli to intercede. The letter ended, please help me. I cannot remain in control for much longer. Now, the interesting thing about this letter is it also contains a piece of Paul Stein's shirt. So the third piece of bloody fabric. Well, Another interesting fact about this letter is that Melvin Belli makes a formal request that any post that the Zodiac wishes to be delivered to him be mailed to the San Francisco Chronicle so that his lawyer can pick it up there. Very odd. He's literally routing any correspondence through the newsroom. Right, and like looking at the letter, the handwriting does not fit the other Zodiac handwriting. It looks like someone's trying to copy the block lettering that the Zodiac uses for his ciphers. The top line looks very similar to the top line in a lot of his letters, but it doesn't devolve. Like, that's what happens. He starts out neat in some letters and then goes, like, crazy as he continues to write. And you could make an argument, if you wanted this to be the same letter writer, that he was writing to a someone he perceived as an authority figure whose approval he sought not taunting the Chronicle, not taunting the police. It's not an adversary, it's an ally. And so he's re- like trying to present himself as more respectable than he does in his crazy letters. But it is a remarkably different handwriting. But it has the piece of shirt. Right. You want me to talk about the shirt now? Go for it. Okay. So I have to tell you, this is not an original theory. There is a man named Dr. Torin who has made it his life's work to prove that the entire Zodiac is an elaborate hoax. And he may go too far. Oh, yes. He may go too far. But one thing he points out that I cannot shake is the shirt. The shirt is weird. I spent about six hours looking at the shirt. (laughs) I know. The shirt could not have been cut while it was on Paul Stein's body. Very unlikely. Here's why that is. It's a man's button-up shirt. There is a cut that does not completely bisect the front panel of the shirt that aligns directly with the cut on the back. 
It is flat and even. I make clothes. I make clothes for my kids. I cut fabric. I have done this. You think you're cutting through one layer and you're actually cutting through two. Like if it was folded. If it was like laid out like a shirt would be, like just flat even. Yeah, okay. But you go to cut through the back, you flip it over, right? Back up. You think you're cutting through just the back. You think you've got the scissors through the seam and you've accidentally cut into the front as well. It is clearly a scissor cut on that side. Because Paul Stein was only shot once and he was not stabbed or anything like that. So it couldn't be like a knife wound mark or anything. That is absolutely correct. In the evidence reports from the San Francisco Police Department, there is no mention of the shirt being cut and or torn. Furthermore, the piece of fabric is taken from the back of the shirt, which would presumably be a tricky place to get fabric from because it's in the middle of two seams. There's no reporting that the suspect has a knife, brandishes a knife, flashes a knife, etc. Doesn't mean he didn't have one. Might have a little pair of fabric shears in his pocket. Maybe. We don't know these things. May have. But if Paul Stein was seated with his back against the seat in the front seat, he would have had to push him forward, pull his shirt tail out if it was tucked, or go after the back side at the seam. Well, devil's advocate, we do have witnesses seeing his body slumped over the killer. Yeah, but they say he's like almost pulled into his lap. Yeah. Imagine if someone was laying over your lap. Oh, he'd have to be like face down. Yeah. Right, we knew he took his wallet. Okay. So he went and they say they see him like rifling through pockets. They say they see him slumped over the body. It looks like he's rifling through things. Yeah. I think the most damning piece of evidence is that there's that other cut. The other cut's odd and that they don't have all three pieces of the fabric. Right. It seems like piece A is missing. It's not pictured in any more recent photographs of the shirt. My theory on the shirt and why I think it's so odd that they took from the back. If you were going to take a shirt, why didn't you just fucking take a shirt? It's unbuttoned in the photos. It was an unbuttoned shirt over another shirt. Yeah, you could have just taken the shirt. That's interesting. That's a good question. I mean, it is a really odd kind of piece of evidence. Okay, so they didn't just take the shirt. And then why choose the back? Like, why go for the back? Okay, he's slumped over, whatever. You still have the weird hesitation mark or whatever that is where they catch the front of the shirt. I don't see how that can happen. And then why not just rip it all off? Like, why stop at that seam? It's arbitrary unless you're trying to conceal the fact that fabric's been removed. So my theory is that it had to come into evidence. And then somebody went and cut that piece of fabric off. It's possible. It's very And possible. it's also worth noting that everything else has been under like the Sacramento FBI branches jurisdiction up until this point. And this moves it to the San Francisco FBI's jurisdiction and also gets the San Francisco police directly involved. It's also before a big letter writing campaign. We're getting more correspondence than we ever have before, right? The rate has picked up exponentially. Right, there's nothing between the two, like Berryessa murder and the Paul Stein murder. And now we're writing every day. And so we have constant correspondence. It's in San Francisco. San Francisco police are working it. San Francisco police are talking about it. The letters are postmarked from San Francisco, downtown San Francisco. Like right near the Chronicle building. And the Chronicle is getting all the letters. Other than the Melvin Belli letter, which he is lined up with the Chronicle. Right. He goes and is like, please send further correspondence to the Chronicle. It's weird. So another piece of evidence that I find very puzzling in the Paul Stein murder is the waybill right so the waybill 
which is where they write down like their fares, their trips and fares, is photographed in a pool of blood in the crime scene photos. However, it's never taken into evidence. Never. So, huh. It's also explicitly referenced after the murder by Chronicle writer Keith Power in a column in which he states that the obvious discrepancy between Washington and Cherry and Washington and Maple, you'll remember Washington and Cherry is the actual location of the murder, whereas the Zodiac claims it took place at Washington and Maple. Or is that vice versa? It's vice versa. However, he says, examining the waybill, it's easy to see that the intended destination of the cab was the one Zodiac said. So he's claiming to have access to this information. It's odd. And in all the later reports in the Chronicle and other papers, it is the correct address. So then comes a series of cabbie attacks. January 26, new cabbie attack, hint of Zodiac. Yellow cab driver Charles Jarman killed in Presidio Heights, just 10 blocks from where Paul Stein was killed. So the Yellow Cab Company puts out a $1,000 reward for the Zodiac Killer in relation to the murders of Paul Stein and Charles Jarman. Now later, a Tenderloin busboy would admit to the holdup of Jarman and murder and be convicted. So April 20th, the Chronicle gets another letter. This is the Zodiac speaking. By the way, have you cracked the last cipher I sent you? My name is... Cipher. 13 symbol cipher. I am mildly curious as to how much money you have on my head now. I've killed 10 people to date. And then he includes another complicated bomb with diagram designed to kill children on a school bus, which he calls his death machine. So he's obviously referencing the Yellow Cab Company's reward, which was written about in the San Francisco Chronicle. So he's like playing with their coverage. He's definitely reading it. And so on the same day, Bizarre Zodiac Murder, Satan Saved Zodiac, written in blood, and this like onk-like symbol is drawn on the wall along with the writing and on the victim's stomach. The victim is Rob Michael Salem, 40, who was stabbed seven times and nearly decapitated. The, quote, expensively decorated hippie-style pad was completely ransacked, and it appeared the killer had taken a shower to wash off his victim's blood. Now, homicide detectives quickly ruled this out as a copycat. So this is a copycat, but Berryessa is not. Of course not. Okay. Just making sure. Just making sure I'm keeping up. So April 28th, 1970, so just eight days later, the Chronicle receives a dragon greeting card. It's cute. And he says, if you don't want to have this blast, you must do two things. Tell everyone about the bus bomb with all the details. And I'd like, I would like to see some Zodiac buttons wandering around town. Everyone else has these buttons like Black Power, Melvinese Blubber, etc. Well, it would cheer me up considerably if I saw a lot of people wearing my buttons. Please, no nasty ones like the Melvins. Thank you. So two things about that. Um, Melvin may be a reference to Melvin Belli, like making fun of him, because the actual button said Melville eats blubber, which is a Moby Dick joke. And Herman Melville. Which I applaud. Good job, guys. That's funny. However, another thing I noticed is that in Michael Majot's description of the Zodiac, he says that he's beefy, not blubbery. Oh, I didn't think of that. You're right. That's interesting. So he writes again on June 26th. Two months later, saying, I've become very upset with the people of San Fran Bay area. 
they have not complied with my wishes for them to wear some nice Zodiac buttons. And in this letter, he includes a map of the San Francisco Bay Area with a like Zodiac symbol, a cross circle on the peak of Mount Diablo, and a code to locate the Zodiac's bomb. And the writer claimed he killed again. He laid claim to the killing of police officer Richard Reddick, but detectives really thought that was kind of bullshit because they already had a really good suspect, this ex-con, that was identified by witnesses. Oh, just that. So, so far he's threatened to, like, blow up children, shoot children, do his thing, claimed credit for assault, murder, and not had any details about the Lake Berryessa attack. He's doing good. He's like 50-50. Yeah. The shirt's the most compelling thing. It like is that's the, the craziest thing. Yeah. So about a month later, July 24th, 1970, he writes to the Chronicle again. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm rather unhappy because you people will not wear some nice Zodiac buttons. So now I have a little list, starting with that woman and her baby that I gave a rather interesting ride for a couple of hours one evening a few months back that ended in me burning her car where I found them. Okay. This case makes my eyes want to roll out of my head. What he's referring to is the case of Kathleen Johns, who in March 22nd of 1970 packed her infant daughter into her station wagon and left San Bernardino to visit her sick mother. Now, another vehicle pulled alongside the station wagon and kind of motioned for her to like pull over. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, that your, one of your wheels is loose. Let me go tighten it up for you. So you can get on the road. So she pulls over. He does it. As she goes to leave, the wheel falls off the car. Mm. So the man that had left earlier turns around, comes and offers her a ride. She claimed that as they were riding around for hours, they kept making veiled threats to harm her child. Eventually, Kathleen grabbed her daughter and jumped from the car. A passing driver eventually picked them up and took them to a nearby police station. When there, the Modesto B reports the next day that Sergeant McNall said he was just quieted her hysterical crying when she saw the Zodiac Killer drawing on a wall poster and said, that's the man, that's the man. So the random dude from the cabbie murder? Yes, that's and the image. That is the image that becomes the Zodiac. So Avery publishes a story of a harrowing encounter. Thinking him, a man, about to make a pass, she sarcastically asked, Do you always go around helping people like this? And he says, When I get through with them, they don't need much help. Ever so often, turning to look at her and say such things as, You know I'm going to kill you, and you know you're going to die. She then makes her harrowing escape, jumping from the car. From there, she can see the stranger, a flashlight in hand, trying to find her. After a while... He got back in his car and drove slowly off. So he's either fabricating this completely or her story grew something fierce. Oh, it did. Because the police report says something completely different. Suspect drove around in the county area for approximately one to one and a half hours. And several times she asked the suspect if he intended to stop at the station. Stated the suspect was quite friendly with her, did not make any advances toward her or threats toward her. When the suspect stopped at a stop sign, she jumped from the vehicle carrying her daughter. The suspect merely closed the door and then had driven away. The vehicle was burnt, which is really odd. So I think she did it. I don't know. You, you're, more, you're more generous in this than I am, but I'm like, 
I mean, it could really just be some other guy, some creep, some other killer, but it definitely. Or a guy with Alzheimer's or something. Like, I mean, it could be. He's like, I'm going to the station. Yeah, it's right up here. Okay. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, it could be. It could be. Or it could be a crazed maniac. Or it could have been Ed Kemper. This sounds like something he would do. Although, I'm pretty sure she'd remember what he looked like. He was 10 feet tall. And bulletproof. And wouldn't stop talking. He and Brian should hang out. They should. <clears throat> but it's a story that definitely changed once it got linked to the Zodiac. It grew and fomented into something splendid. So two days later, he sends another letter bitching about the buttons <laughs> and just proclaiming how much he is torturing. He's going to torture all of his slaves in paradise. Cool. And he starts to quote a Gilbert and Sullivan musical, The Mikado, which leads police to start questioning everyone that has participated in the Mikado's production in the area. So it's like half the tenderloin. So next, October 5th, 1970, sends the 13-hole postcard, which is all clipped that says, Dear Editor, you'll hate me, but I've got to tell you, the pace isn't any slower. In fact, it's just one big 13. Some of them thought it was horrible. And then the Zodiac symbol. And then upside down, it says, P.S. There are reports city police pig cops are closing in on me, but I'm crack-proof. What's the price tag now? So this one doesn't have any handwriting on it. No, it's all clippings. And they identified it as coming from the comic strip Smidgens. Fun. And then, October 27th, so less than a month later, he sends Paul Avery a Halloween card. How thoughtful. Which he does spell as Averly. And he does not send a cipher, but has the words paradise as crossed with slaves to form four corners where he placed the wording by fire, by gun, by rope, and by knife. Outside of the card, there's a skeleton with a pumpkin. This is from your secret pal. I feel it in my bones. You ache to know my name, and so I'll clue you in. But then why spoil the fun? And then he's written in, in white artist ink, peekaboo, you are doomed. And then a four, the number, and teen. And then the Zodiac logo, a Z. And then there's other odd little logo. It looks like a bird, you know, like the V birds you put at the top of paintings kind of, but it's more geometric and it's got like an extra little serif on one side and then one, two, three, four dots going around the center. At this point, Paul Avery starts carrying a gun. (laughs) Avery said in the paper, it looks like a Zodiac has gotten sore at some of the things I've written about him. He is unquestionably a shrewd individual and has quite correctly read between the lines and knows I disbelieve his ever-mounting claims as to the number of persons he says he has killed. I consider that you are doomed to be more of the same. A lot of talk. But I'm going to carry this gun just in case, okay? Okay. I would do the same thing. I'd be like, this is bullshit. Give me a gun. This is exactly how that would go. So you have a long time before he writes again. March 13th. It's almost five months later. He writes to the LA Times. The nerve. What does he have to say to the LA Times? Well, he says the reason I'm writing the Times is this. They don't bury me in the back pages like some of the others. I see that he takes note of his news coverage. And he also says something about stumbling across my riverside activity. Had someone stumbled across his riverside activity? Well, of course. Paul Averly? Paul Averly. Good job. Paul Avery, in the same article, 
where he talks about Johnson being abducted and her jumping from the car mm-hmm. with her baby. Mm-hmm. Oh, she was seven months pregnant too, by the way. Badass. Or crazy, and we burned our own car, but whatever. <laughs> also mentions the Riverside activity. So the Riverside connection is something that occurred October 30th, 1966. And Airely was tipped off to look into this by a man named Phil Sins. And he didn't know anything about him, but he called and was like, you should go check out the Riverside information. So Averly scoots his merry little ass down to Riverside and does go and try to find out some more about the goings on down there. And the detectives were none too pleased because they had a suspect they liked, but that never mattered. So this is the case of Sherry Joe Bates. One day she left a note for her dad that read, Dad went to the RCC library. The next morning, her Volkswagen Beetle was found abandoned in the library parking lot and her Bonnie was lying nearby to, between two houses. Her body was found by the groundskeeper, Cleophas Martin. Cleophas is a fantastic name. She was lying face down in the gravel driveway and she'd been stabbed several times and her throat was slashed. Police found a man's Timex torn off splattered with household paint, a military boot print, and hairs and dried blood on the victim's hand. They thought that she'd been killed around 8.30, with the library closing around 9. What really makes the case odd and starts linking it is that about a month after the murder, the local newspaper and the police department received typewritten letters titled The Confession. Hmm. And it says, bye, and there's a line, like a blank. She was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. She is not the first, and she will not be the last. Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. I first cut the middle wire from the distributor, then I waited for her in the library and followed her out after about two minutes. The battery must have been dead by then. I then offered to help. She was then very willing to talk to me. I told her that my car was down the street, and I would give her a lift home. When we were... Away from the library walking, I said it was about time, and she asked me, About time for what? And I said it was about time for her to die. Making her pay for all the brush-offs that she'd given me during the years prior, she died hard. She said, I'm not sick. I'm insane. But that will not stop the game. This letter should be published for all to read it. Beware. I'm stalking your girls now. I find that one creepier, for whatever reason. It's even worse. I left out some of the worst bits. Oh, it feels more psychotic. It feels more desperate. I don't know what it is. It's not like a, it's not as haughty. It's desperate. So my first thought is, it sounds like the Betsy Ardsma murder from Penn State. Well, we looked at this case, actually, before we knew it was linked to Zodiac when we were doing that episode. My second thought is, damn, it sounds like Bundy. He, we looked at his timeline. Right, he was in San Francisco, like, the summer following this it's not out of the realm of possibility possibility in my mind because he was all over the place but my third thought is this is more like lake berryessa than anything else and interestingly cecilia shepherd attended riverside where this murder took place it is interesting but the confession letter that's interesting now Another interesting thing about this case is that it was covered heavily in the true crime publications that were popular at the time. The Pulp Magazine's Inside Detective, I believe, had a lengthy expose on this case in which the confession letter was publicized. All published. 
And so if nothing else, this would be a suitable model for someone to adopt if they wanted to gain notoriety. Oh, and he also, the next year, wrote handwritten letters to the newspaper, the police, and Sherry J. Bates' father. Virtually identical letters that said Bates had to die. There will be more. And her father's letter said she had to die. There will be more. And they were signed. With what? This kind of wiggly Z. Is it a Z because we want it to be a Z? I think it's a Z because he wanted it to be. Okay. That's more than the Zodiac ever did. He never sent letters to families. Not really. <laughs> I don't know if this is connected. Yeah, and there's another like poem that was found written in a desk in December of 1966, which is really disturbing, like blood spurting, dripping, spilling, life draining into an uncertain death. Yeah, it sounds like college freshman to me. I know, it's like anyone could write that. So it's really, really odd. The handwriting, even though the handwriting at the time were like, it's definitely the Zodiac Killer, to me it looks like nothing like it. Well, no, they actually read all of the FBI reports on handwriting today, and they say that it's inconclusive, but it shouldn't be disqualified. Yeah, but Morris, who was like the handwriting oh, expert, was like, yeah. hell yes. That guy said everything matched. He also was like, if I was in the bank next to the Zodiac Killer... I could tell you from him filling out his deposit slip. And you know, I believe he believed that. Oh, I do too. Oh, yeah. But I think he was very wrong. (laughs) But you're right. This was very well publicized. This was in all the pulp detective novels. It would serve as an excellent model. And so in 1982, the case was reopened. And the public statement said, The showing of very old composites and the review of previously examined cryptic writings by some of the media have resulted in considerable interest by the rest of the media, whose knowledge of the Zodiac is based on outdated information linking the investigation with those referred to as Zodiac cases. Speculation and creative reporting of this kind could conceivably hamper successful prosecution. The person we believe responsible for the slaying of Sherry Jo Bates is not the individual other law enforcement authorities believe responsible for the so-called Zodiac killings. There's a hair of skepticism there, Buster. Shade. That's some shade. There's some FBI shade, too. Yeah, but the Riverside connection was revealed to the public by Paul Avery in the San Francisco Chronicle on November 16th of 1970, several months before the Zodiac writes into the LA Times claiming it, saying, good job, Paul Averly. Oh, but also, fuck you, San Francisco Chronicle. You're going to stop writing about me? The nerve of you guys. So on March 22nd, 1971. Yep, it's still unsolved. Just a few days later, the Chronicle receives a postcard addressed to Paul Averly with a picture of, like, housing of some sort. And there's, like, clipped out words pasted to it that says, Sought Victim 12. Wait, I thought we already had 14. Yeah, this might have been an earlier victim. Okay. Peek through the pines, past Lake Tahoe area, signed with the Zodiac logo. So is there handwriting on this one? No, it's all clipped to lettering. Okay. So like the 13 hole card. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very cryptic, and it seems to be giving us the location of a body. Seems to be. Okay. Do they ever piece it together? Someone does. Of course they do. Guess who? Paul Averly? Paul Averly. Averly, you dog, you. Paul Avery has got this down. So he writes an article linking this 
to a missing persons case. Donna Lass, who disappeared from State Line, Nevada on September 6 of 1970. She finished her shift as a nurse at the Sahara Tahoe Hotel, and she went missing. No one knows where she went. No one heard from her. Sometime following, an unknown man contacted her employers along with her landlord, stating that Donna Lass had been called out of town due to a family illness. Now, whenever Paul Avery reports this in the paper, he also mentions some other cases, such as on March 7th, Judith Ann Hakari, 23, vanished at the end of her regular shift as a nurse at Sutter Memorial Hospital in Sacramento. Her apartment was untouched and her car was found nearby. Seven weeks later, the savagely beaten body, raped and strangled, of Miss Hakari was found buried in a shallow grave in the Sierra foothills of Placer County. The case remains unsolved. So how do they decide that it's Donna Lass and not her? That's my question. Why her? Because she's missing. I guess you need to look for her. You need to go look for her. Okay, well, to play devil's advocate for one moment, the Zodiac never made any attempt at concealment in his earlier crimes, supposedly. No, if it was one guy, he even almost laid them out. Like, (laughs) it was almost, like, staged in a way. He didn't truly stage them, but he left them out to be found. Much more concerned with getting away than he was with hiding the body. Concealment often means that an assailant knows the victim because they assume that if they found them, they would come looking for them. So if it's stranger murder, it's more common that the bodies be left in the open. Anyway. And Sacramento paper at the time showed police discounting news reports of a possible connection between the Zodiac cases and the unsolved slayings of the two girls. So Donna Lass is just gone. She's gone. No one knows what happened to her. Still don't. But she's one of those loosely associated. Like yeah, it's brought yeah. up in almost every thorough examination. It's on that History Channel show. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Zodiac never claimed anything related to her. Okay. It would just have the Pines postcard, which could be a curry. could be anything. And it could be somebody else. Oh, right. Oh, definitely. Because it's not handwritten. Right. Because on April 13th of 1971, there was a knife murder of a girl, 18, fears of Zodiac. One thing's certain, Miss Kathy Bellock's murder is almost a carbon copy of a double killing here almost two years ago, and all three could well be the work of the so-called Zodiac. On August 3rd of 1969, there was the slaying of Deborah Furlong, 14, and Kathy Snoozy, 15, with hundreds of stab wounds each. There's a lot of murder happening in California. (laughs) There's a lot. A lot. I feel like the 70s were all serious. Like, just serial killers. Just like everything in the country was just serial killers. And disco. So we get one more letter from Is it like, here is the final solution. I'm going to tell you my name. I confess everything. Melvin Belli, help me. No, of course not. So three years later... Three years. January 29th, 1974. There's a letter sent to the Chronicle. The Chronicle writes, The killer who calls himself Zodiac broke a silence of nearly three years yesterday with a bizarre note mailed to the Chronicle. And he does it to critique Avery's article about the Exorcist. (laughs) I saw and think the Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that I've ever seen. Signed, yours truly. And then he quotes... Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado again. And then some weird markings. And he says, Me, 37. SFPD, zero. Uh huh. So that's considered the last canonical. Canonical. It's very, very hotly debated. 
There's one other one that I think is interesting. That is from February 14th, 1974. And it's a postcard to the Chronicle where it refers to the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was a group of militant urban guerrillas that were responsible for the, quote, abduction, that's another episode, of newspaper heiress Patty Hearst. And the message was just signed, a friend. Right. Well, fun fact, Avery goes on to be the lead reporter on the Patty Hearst case. Right. That is like what he becomes known for after this. Right. He writes the book. Literally. He wrote the book on it. Literally. And so from one super cool media frenzy case to another. Exactly. And there are a few other letters that are, you know, reportedly from the Zodiac and some bullshit. The one more I want to mention. Okay. There's a Christmas card Mm -hmm. from 1990. Shut up. The exterior reads, from your secret pal, can't guess who I am yet. Well, look inside and you'll find out. And once open, it says that I'm going to keep you guessing. Happy holidays anyway. And include a photocopy of two U.S. postal keys. Now, this was not reported on at the time. Guess when it was discovered in the San Francisco Chronicles archives? 2007. March 2nd, 2007. Do you know when the movie Zodiac, directed by David Fincher, came out? March 3rd? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So it's complete bullshit. I can't believe someone pulled that. They may have really found it in the archives. The day the movie was released. Well, they knew it was coming out. They're like, hey, let's gin up some press for the Zodiac. Maybe people are going to be interested because the movie's coming out. Go look in the files and see what's there. And they pull out the 17 boxes of shit. And find one card that's not been reported on in the past. That's interesting. I don't think it's bullshit. That's what you think is bullshit? You think that's the San Francisco Chronicle cover-up? I think it's the continuation. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. Okay, so for the San Francisco Chronicle, the Zodiac was a little too good to be true. It was perfect. They had an exclusive with a serial killer. Weekly interviews or weekly write-ins. Like, he was basically co-authoring the true crime beat with Paul Avery. But Paul Avery wasn't the only person who made his name on the Zodiac who was working at the Chronicle at the time. Very true. So... Keith Power was like the DOJ equivalent reporter. He was in the court building and associated offices on a daily basis. And where Avery was a skeptic and kind of a dick to the Zodiac, Power was like, let him do his thing. <laughs> like He was much more rah, rah, rah. You know, he's the guy that bent over backwards to make sure that the Zodiac's information appeared correct when he misnamed the streets in the Paul Stein murder. And then there was one-time cartoonist, suddenly fabulous, true crime auteur, Robert Graysmith. Now, Graysmith published Zodiac in 1986. You might have heard of it. It's what everything is based off of. It is the authoritative source on Zodiac, supposedly. And he was asked why he wrote the book. And he said, I saw it going into obscurity. Nobody is sharing all the different jurisdictions and all this information. What if I, as a private citizen, went around and got all of this information, basically, and shared the story? So then he put on his fedora and his Ray-Bans and said he was on a mission from God and drove away (laughs) like a blues brother into the night. But he'd been employed at the Chronicle during the entire Zodiac episode. 
He was a cartoonist and was also in charge of doing like strip photography of cartoons and preparing them for print. And he worked, if you see the movie, near, near <laughs> Now, it is true that for years and years, really prior to the to the Fincher movie coming out, there was not a lot of debate. If it was in Graysmith's work, it was gospel. Fact. However, in 2007, the FBI also coordinated a massive file release. Now, I do believe that that was in response to interest generated by the movie. And that's why I don't find the San Francisco Chronicle thing that weird. It's like, hey, people look for this. People are reading it. People okay. are interested. Okay. But the FBI did a massive file dump. Go look at that. You got time. It's a fun place. You might get to take a survey. I took a survey today. I rated my level of confidence in the FBI as high. Uh, <laughs> did they ask you if you love J. Edgar Hoover? <laughs> I did not love J. I should have written that in my comments section. <laughs> I should have been like, rename your building. <laughs> I love his mincing gate. I love his mincing gate, but rename your building. And also, even in the movie, in the narrative of Fincher's movie, he makes Graysmith look a little crazy. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I was actually happy because we, we watched the movie in theaters. And we hadn't seen it since hadn't then. Seen it since, and we rewatched it after we'd kind of done a lot of research. And I was really happy to see that Fincher put that kind of question in there. We got interested in rewatching it after we saw Mindhunter. Go watch it. Pause. Pause. You have 13 hours or whatever. <laughs> it's really good. But there was a massive interest in the case. A new generation of web sleuths kind of got interested in Zodiac. And when this happened, several people started to point out discrepancies between Graysmith's work and actual accounts of cases. Lots of discrepancies. He adds more than color. He goes a little far. And the thing that really, I think, drives him off the rails is his preoccupation with one suspect. And we will see suspect everywhere. It's basically gone down in canon that Arthur Lee Allen was a Zodiac. And if you don't know that, you're just stupid. But he's been ruled out. He's been ruled out by fingerprints, by DNA, by handwriting, by... by, by. And I don't necessarily believe that the letters alone should rule him out the fingerprints are the most damning evidence to me because the dna itself is from licking the envelope and the stamp i think it's a stamp and you could get someone else to lick it well <laughs> get your dog to lick it freaking unabomber like just wet it with water and then put hairs from someone else on a bus because he's a mad genius and he was part of mk ultra <laughs> And he may have been the Zodiac. If the, anyone was the Zodiac, it was probably Ted Kaczynski. Sure. Um, if anyone wrote the Zodiac letters, it was probably Ted Kaczynski. And that is a leading fringe theory. Yes. It's a leading fringe theory. Welcome to 2017. But it's interesting because Graysmith's book has created the legend of the Zodiac. And without a doubt, it has become legend. It is something people talk about and tell scary stories about about the zodiac killer there are movies and books and articles about it oh and the forums the forums for days for days but it has become america's jack the ripper and so i'd like to pause here for a second first of all he creates a narrative that darlene must have known her killer and that it's darlene's connection to arthur lee allen that makes him a suspect the idea that you can tell who Darlene did or did not know is complex. <laughs> but 
He also misstates facts that we know he had access to, such as stating that the 1210 call is what alerted police and that the 1210 call was the Zodiac. He goes out of his way to make sure that the, the automobile mentioned in the first account is always white and that the blue version is never mentioned. He takes care to make sure that the witness statements are all consistent with the description of Arthur Lee Allen. And he really frames the narrative around the idea of there being one killer. And I can't, I can't, I I cannot get my head around the idea that one person did all this. And I've, I've done episodes on Bundy. (laughs) Like I know what people are capable of. It's not that. It's, it's that it's too inconsistent and not in an Israel Keys kind of way. We'll do that one day. But it's not a carefully calculated master plan. There's too many errors in the letters. There are too many false threats. There are too many inconsistencies. Right. There's false information in the letters. There's nothing that's correct that's not reported in the papers at the time before the letters are written. Or in the police reports. True. So, in speculating on who wrote the letters, if you believe that one individual wrote the letters, which I have doubts about, we'll talk about that in a second, but if you believe that consistently through the entire duration of the Zodiac's interaction with the Chronicle, you have one writer, he could be someone that has access to police information. Very much. There's no reason to doubt that. Crime reporters often have access to police information unofficially, off the record, on background. I see no reason that this could not have been something concocted by a news agency. Well, we have plenty of evidence of the San Francisco Chronicle connecting the Zodiac with 10, 20 other murders that were later ruled out. And sensationalizing cases that were very tangentially related. And the ones that stuck are the ones that remain unsolved. We don't know who abducted the woman and her baby. We don't know who took Donna Lass. We don't know who killed Sherry Jo Bates. That case has never been solved. It's the ones that stayed open. Because they would, they and the Zodiac would say, hey, I did that. By the way. And then it would be proven that he didn't or that an individual who didn't want to claim the other murders that he hadn't done was the suspect or was the perpetrator. And it was never brought up again. Zodiac was never like, gotcha, pulled a trick, haha. It was just like allowed to disintegrate into the ether. It's because people were reading newspapers daily and discarding them, not cataloging the information and pouring through it like we can now on the internet. Which we did. <laughs> yeah, we'll bet. We are emerging. From our cocoon, a Zodiac cocoon. <laughs> From our like cast. No, it's more like castaway. We're more like coming off the desert island and trying to reintegrate into society. <laughs> so... I think it's far more likely that there was a person writing letters, connecting unconnected crimes, taking advantage of the opportunity that was presented to them than that the murderer was actually writing in, making false threats, claiming murders he hadn't committed, and misleading authorities with an ingenious plan. But my personal theory is that the first two murders may have been connected. Very possible. Drug-related, even. Maybe. And that it's also possible that the actual murderer made a phone call and that the actual murderer wrote in the first two times or somebody else did. However, they stopped after Lake Berryessa when they realized that someone was being inspired 
by their writing. Yeah, because we get no one claiming the Lake Berryessa case. So they freaked out when they saw the Lake Berryessa murder. We're like, shit, and stopped. And then somebody picked it up again. After Paul Stein, when they had access to all the evidence. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say. I mean, that's my pet theory. It's like what I think happened. And I, I do believe that someone affiliated with the Chronicle probably did help push the narrative. Yeah, because at the time, you see police making statements saying, this isn't related to the Zodiac. We really don't think this is related to the Zodiac. But after Graysmith's book comes out, it becomes canon. The doubts melt. Interestingly, Graysmith is not the only one who comes up with a suspect and sort of retrofits the crime and the narrative and the ciphers and the everything. Because everyone who writes a book basically claims that they solved the 340 cipher and that they found their suspect's name in the cipher. There are others. There's a man named Gareth Penn who believes his Harvard professor, known as Mr. O, committed all the crimes. Everyone claims it's someone they know. You have lots of people claiming it's their dad that did it, including a guy from where we live. Who I want to be best friends with, by the way. Book's pretty good. Most Dangerous Animal of All is the title. Great title, have to say. Gary Stewart. And then you have this guy named Blaine Blaine, who claims that it's his former boss that did it. They are in FBI files because they are so persistent in their pursuit of the truth, that they harass the men that they believe to be the Zodiac killer. And the FBI tells them, you've got to cut that out. Right. Because it's getting to the point of ridiculous. There are, oh my God, Penn, his book is called Time 17. If you want to go read something that will literally make you like go cry in a corner, <laughs> you're just having that kind of day where you're like, I'm too happy. I want to be insane. Things are going too well. You should go read this book because, oh my freaking god he believes that it's a combination of morse code and basically binary code using the wizard alphabet oh my god anyway but everyone goes in it's basically like this carnival of confirmation bias because you can make anyone be the zodiac because the zodiac is such an empty character there's no defining characteristic maybe a familiarity with mikado like that's it That's like the one thing that was weird about him that couldn't have been just any guy off the street. And in case you're wondering, the entire Manson family was interviewed and ruled out as suspects. So you can see that there's this really weird intersection between our fascination with crimes and serial killers and evil geniuses. We are, as a nation, quite fascinated with evil geniuses. I don't know that we've come to terms with that yet. But our obsession with media, with mayhem, and this need to feel like you've been let in on a secret like you've been taken into the inner sanctum of their insanity hidden knowledge everyone loves them you want to be the one to crack the code you want to be the one to put it all together and make sense of it and find reason and order in this chaos you want to make sense of it if we just knew who had been doing all this we could just find the killer it would all make sense and it wouldn't Even if we found the person responsible, it would still be an awful outlier in the normal scope of human behavior. And now that the legend is so firmly entrenched, now that there is a canon, now that there are accepted Zodiac crimes, it's impossible to look past that. And it could mean that the families involved will never get justice, and that could be the fault of a letter writer who claimed credit for all these crimes and linked them together and made the story. And you may say something like that could never happen. Without a doubt, these true murders and deaths of people 
their investigations were most likely led astray by their ties to the Zodiac. So I want to bring you one case to bring the point home, and that's of the Yorkshire Ripper. Huge swans in the north of England were gripped by fear after a series of murders which had claimed the lives of 10 women by the summer of 1979. They called him the Yorkshire Ripper. Now the police started receiving letters in 1978, posted from Sunderland. Dear Sir, I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. I've been dumbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. You and your mates having a clue that photo in the paper gave me fits in that bit about killing myself, no chance. I've got things to do. My purpose is to rid the streets of them sluts. Uh. My one regret is that young Lassie McDonald did not know cause changed routine that night. Up to number eight now, you say seven, but remember Preston 75. Good about you now. You are right. I travel a bit. You probably look for me in Sunderland. Don't bother. I'm not daft. Just posted a letter there on one of my trips. Not a bad place compared with Chapel Town and Manningham and other places. Warn whores to keep off the streets because I feel it coming on again. Sorry about the young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. So, dear sir, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that he's killing whores, another Jack the Ripper, and the, the pure, sweet, innocent girl he killed is his one regret. Yes. So he is very much cribbing some serious source material here. But he's also lining up a lot with Zodiac. He's claiming the number of victims. He's claiming, oh, well, you think I'm really smart. I'm not insane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he also says, might write again later. I'm not sure the last one really deserved it. Whores getting younger each time. Old slut next time, I hope. His use of the word whores and slut is really just annoying me. (laughs) Well, so his next letter was sent to the Daily Mirror. The Manchester office. So the first one's to the police. Yes. Second one's to the papers. Five days later. Did the police put it in the papers? No. Okay. So he's like, you know it would be more fun? We get it in the press. Okay. I didn't know that she was decent, and I'm sorry I changed my routine that night. Up to murder eight now. You say seven, but remember pressing 75. Oh, he's going back to that. He's kind of repeating it. Police haven't a clue yet, and I don't leave any. I'm very clever. Clever again. Very Zodiac. And he also says, well, I might strike in Manchester next time. Wow. Don't forget. Warn them. I feel it coming on again. I'm going to do my thing. If I get a chance, sorry about Lassie I didn't know. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Like, come up with a new name. But anyway, go on. At least the Zodiac was original. So the 75 Preston case was something that was mentioned in the papers as possibly Mm. being related. But the police thought probably not. Okay. They kind of brushed it off as a hoax at the time because they were getting all kind of calls and letters and things. Then the third letter comes in a little over a year later to the police. Dear officer, sorry I haven't written about a year to be exact. Mm-hmm. Zodiac says mm-hmm. that. But I haven't been up north for quite a while. I wasn't kidding last time I wrote saying the whore would be older this time and maybe I'd strike in Manchester for a change. You should have took heed. That bit about her being in hospital? Funny. The lady mentioned something about being in hospital before I stopped her whoring ways. The lady won't worry about hospitals now, will she? I bet you'd be wondering, how come I haven't been to work for ages? Well, I would have been if it hadn't been for your cursed coppers. I had the lady just where I wanted her and was about to strike when one of you cursing police cars stopped right outside the lane. 
He must have been a dumb copper because he didn't say anything. He didn't know how close he was to catching me. Tell you the truth, I thought I was collared. Lady said, don't worry about the coppers. Little did she know that bloody copper saved her neck. That was last month, so I don't know when I'll get back on the job. But I know it won't be Chapleton too bloody hot there. Maybe Bradford's Manningham. Might write again if, if up north. Jack the Ripper. So that is like, wow, Fook Memo, what? Yeah, he is saying, like, oh, you missed me. You Pulled a goof. Me. And he's also giving insider info. So the hospital, huh? Yeah. And he correctly predicted the place and the age of the yes, victim. Yes. And the police thought only the killer would know that the victim, Vera Willard, had been in hospital recently. So through a semen test, the man who had murdered Joan Harrison, claimed by the letter writer as one of his victims, belonged to the blood group B, which is about 6% of the population. A saliva test on the most recent letter revealed the person was group B. Oh, well. So they thought, very possible, they're connected. And he previously claimed he was going to kill an older one next in the first letter, mm-hmm. in second. Mm-hmm. And... The next one was a 40-year-old, Vera Millward, who was in Manchester. So at this point, it would be irresponsible to ignore this guy. And so it really comes home when June 17th, 1979, just a few months later, he sends a tape in to the police. Like an audio recording? An audio tape where he taunts the police, claims the murders, and says, I hope you like this catchy tune at the end. Ha ha. And it finishes with a clip of... Thank you for being a friend. The Golden Girls song. Yes. Uh-uh. Okay. Okay. So when they had this tape, they were like, we have evidence now. This guy is speaking with a Wareside accent. Cool. The tape was leaked and police were forced to release it. They set up a Dial the Ripper phone line for people to be able to hear the tape. A total of 40,000 men were quizzed in connection with the tape. But to no avail. 40,000. 40,000, yeah. Four, zero, 40,000. Four with four zeros behind it. Oh, my Including God. all of the towns that would have a wearside accent. Oh, my God. I had linguists on it, everything. There was a massive publicity campaign to try to, quote, flush out the Ripper, which included billboards in more than 600 locations, posters, a special four-page newspaper that was delivered to every home in Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, and the Northeast. There was radio airplay of the tape, police messages, the tape was played in pubs, working men's clubs, and even at football grounds. So with all of this, the list of possible suspects ballooned to 17,000. Were there buttons? I don't think there were buttons. <laughs> so the police created a points for elimination, mm-hmm. including the B blood type, okay. handwriting samples, oh. and the accent. Oh. So if you did not have these things when they were interviewing you... You were free to go. You are free to go. In January of 1981, Peter Sudcliffe was arrested after picking up a prostitute. The 33-year-old confessed to the killings. He was from Bradford and had a soft-spoken Yorkshire accent. <sighs> he was interviewed about the murders only to be eliminated because he did not sound as if he was from Sunderland. He was interviewed at least five times. Oh my God. And was ruled out with a handwriting comparison. In the initial interview when he confessed, the officer says, Tell me, you're the so-called Ripper. How many women have you killed? And Cyclist is 11. But I haven't done that one in Preston. 
I've been to Preston, but I haven't done that one. Officer says, are you the author of the letters and the tape recording? Posted from Sunderland to the police and the press from a man admitting to be the Ripper? No, I'm not. While ever that was going on, though, I felt safe. I'm not a Geordie. I was born at Shipley. Have you any idea who sent the letters on the tape? No. It's no one connected with me. I have no idea who sent them. So just to be clear, when that first letter went out, there were seven murders. Mm-hmm. And then when they arrested Sutcliffe, there were 11. 11 he admitted to. 11. And there's some assaults as well. So that's, that's four more. Mm-hmm. How can I be more mad at the person who wrote the letters? Oh, because... Then I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the things the police linked to, you had the B group. Um, they thought that the information about Vera Millward being a patient in the hospital was police-only information. But they later found out that it was published in the Daily Mail shortly after her murder, with her husband saying she had been to the hospital before about stomach pains. He'd also predicted that she'd be older. She was 40, but some of the most of the previous victims were teenagers. So older is very relative. Yes. And it was also in Manchester, which today is the second most densely populated area in the United Kingdom. So in September 2003, police said they were never going to be able to prosecute any suspect because the time had elapsed so long. Prosecute someone for, for the letters. For the letters. Because this guy writing the letters is the cause of all of the deaths that occurred after. Or definitely a contributing I mean, factor. He's not a direct cause, but like without him, I mean, they created this huge campaign. Wait, they moved to Sunderland because of him. They moved the entire investigation. They interviewed every single person in that town. They ruled out the actual killer because of the tape. You can't fault the police for this. Like, I really don't think it's irresponsible to have investigated this. Like, no. I really don't. No, no, I think no. that he did an excellent job in his attempt to use what he had to find this guy. It is, it is the fault of, of the person who did this. On a review of cold cases, using the latest DNA testing, police were able to identify from that DNA sample they have, where they got the B. Sarah group, which they didn't have DNA testing. All they could do is blood typing. Type. They identified John Samuel Humble, who had given five years prior a DNA sample when he was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. He pled guilty to four counts of perverting the course of justice. So I guess the point is, I think that as much as we love true crime and as much as we love the idea of playing detective, it's really, really important to remember that these are not just stories. Maybe the Zodiac Killer is just a story concocted by some letter writer taking real murders, real people that were killed and had their lives cut short, and concocting a story. And maybe it's easier to believe that one sick individual is responsible for all of those deaths and to believe that there are that many bad people in the world. You know, like it cuts down by half what we have to worry about. Maybe that's easier for us. And maybe the idea of a dark, tortured genius concocting these brilliant ciphers that no one can solve is more appealing than believing that people just get killed and other people just make up stories about it. And I think that's why I find Deeper, that YouTube channel, so haunting and so unsettling. 
Because they are using real cases. It's basically a recreation of the Zodiac for anyone who cares to see it. No intermediaries, no newspaper, just out there for the whole world. Anyone who looks, even their family members, you know, they'll see a guy constructing a narrative that's not his story. And it's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.